Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina. Because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it starts now. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, March the 14th, 843-661-0937. Unusual to not say good morning, Cato. Cato's first morning away from the fold. We wish him well as he pursues, um, I guess, more lucrative endeavors, different endeavors. How about that? <laughs> we didn't get into the specifics of the lucrative nature of his endeavor or not, but it's back to um, it's back to the Royal Rev and, and yours truly. Yeah. Batman and Robin. Just, just like we started. Yeah, yeah just as we began. <laughs> uh, nearly 10 years ago. <laughs> nearly. Yeah, uh, October, if I'm not mistaken. August. August. August will be our 10th year anniversary and uh, we should be much better but we've not improved <laughs> a lot over the years <laughs> but we've showed up so <laughs> we, we've been consistently bad or consistently average uh how about that mm-hmm. uh kind of an interesting weekend uh did not well i mean i guess i did pay attention to politics uh, my weekend was immersed in particular saturday in politics had probably the most complicated day i've had in a long 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 I can time Im- i can imagine yeah i'm mean, gonna eulogize my father-in-law at 11 o'clock Saturday morning, uh, my wife was adamant about my daughter and I going to the Trump event Saturday afternoon, um, and it was like a NASCAR race. I mean, it just reminded me, the uh, the, the ambiance <laughs> reminded me of a NASCAR race. Wild. You know, and we'll get into that. I've had several people text me this morning, you know, asking what it was like. A couple of people texted me yesterday, but I was trying to catch up. Uh, I mean, I had to be aware of my wife. You know, as selfish as I am, uh, you still got to be considerate of of um your better half or in my case my better half and and where her emotions and feelings and things like that were you know my father-in-law I didn't talk a lot about it last week he'd been sick I mean he got real sick in September and uh, we thought we'd lost him that night and he kind of rallied and came back and um you know as much as she wanted to believe he was getting better I I just saw a decline you know I didn't I mean I didn't see death's door but I saw a um a lack of improvement uh, died the day before his 84th birthday, so you could honestly say he had a fair shake. But as a daughter or a son-in-law or, you know, a, a family of a loved one, it's, it's never enough. The Diamond Rio song, one more day. I mean, we want one more day, no matter if you die, you know, 63 or uh, as my father did or 83 as her as her dad did. But um, doing the eulogy was an honor for me. Um, I joked around about, you know, there's a... Um, you know, I'm a lyrics guy. We talk about mine and your musical taste a lot. Mm-hmm. Vince Gill wrote a song. And in the song, I mean, the song was written the day that he found out Merle Haggard had passed away. And Vince Gill looked up to Merle Haggard. Um, both were Okies. And uh, you remember the old um, anthem, the country music anthem, Okie from Muskogee, back in the day. And that is yeah. really back in the day. <laughs> but uh, but ben, Vince Gill held Merle Haggard in extremely high regard. And he wrote a song called A Life Without Haggard. And he said he wrote it on his bus in Georgia when he found out that Haggard had passed away. And I just kind of played off that. I don't know a life without Mr. Terry. I, I just don't. I mean, uh, my wife moved to Pamplico when she was in the first grade. Her brother was in the third grade. I was in the second grade. And her brother and I became best friends. And um, so he was always there, you know, at a Marquette basketball game. Interesting nugget of information. 
the three things he loved. I mean, he loved his family. His family was first and foremost, and he was the most consistent, committed, and content man I've ever known in my life. Let me tell you an illustration of contentment and consistency. You ready? Mm -hmm. As a 17-year-old, he went to work at Hunter Motor Company, which eventually became Horn Ford, Hub Ford, Mike Rickenbaugh Ford. But as a 17-year-old, in July of 1955, he went to work in the parts department at Hunter Motor Company. He had a major medical event in September at 20, in 2021. Guess where? In the parts department at Mike Rickenbaugh Ford. Wow. So for better than 66 years, uh, he manned the post. And I just think that is an illustration. Uh, not, not a life of fame and fortune. Not a life of notoriety. No buildings or streets named after him. But just a dedication to his family and his job that, that I think is just admirable. Completely and totally um, admirable. I'll tell you a quick story. Time changed Saturday night, Sunday morning. He would go after church, fall back, spring ahead. He would go after church twice a year to set the clocks, you know, in the old analog days and and the clock on the wall, and he would go turn it back or turn it forward so when everybody got there Monday morning, things were as they they needed to be. Um, The only time I remember being angry with him, (laughs) this is kind of a, a, a credit to him and a discredit to me, The only time I got angry with him, we had a trip planned. Might have been the SEC basketball tournament. I had some tickets, and they're they're big. They actually went to the first game ever played. He and his wife uh, went to the first game ever played at the old Carolina Coliseum. It's kind of interesting. He talked about the red clay, the construction still going on around the outside of the arena. And if you're a Gamecock basketball fan, the Frank McGuire era of Gamecock basketball was kind of the uh, Camelot for Gamecock fans. Rev, as much as you like the the Steve Spurrier era in football, mm-hmm. I still think the McGuire era in basketball is probably the pinnacle of Gamecock athletics you, outside of Tanner winning one of the World uh, Series. But but anyway, um, just the, the consistency he demonstrated in his life was something that I've always found uh, unbelievably admirable. Now, now, my relationship with him changed in 87 when he um, – well, I, I was going to tell this first. So I get aggravated with him because it's inventory day on a Saturday morning, and he's got to be there until 3. We need to leave at 12 to get to Atlanta, the SEC basketball tournament in time. And he says, no, I need to be there until 3. I'm like, dude, you're 80 years old, man, (laughs) and you've been there 60-some-odd years. Cut out two hours early. Tell somebody there that you've got a you got you know you got some family and some business and you got to get out of there when he wouldn't. I mean he just would not do it and we had to schedule a later later flight. I don't know. Just I I, I remember Doc, and he said he's not. I'm her, my wife, his daughter said that's just the way he is. Yeah. You know he's he's kind of committed to the calls and and he's going to do what he's serious supposed. about it. Responsibility, no, no question about it. Admirable. You know I even said to the pulpit um, that when I married his daughter in '87. And, and I've joked around about this, but it's kind of sort of true. Um, my wife left me after about three months of marriage. And she said, and I quote, you know, you may drive a woman crazy or a man crazy. No, a woman crazy. It's just not going to be not going to be me. And she bugged out. Now, she has since admitted that the reason she didn't leave two weeks into the wedding is her dad had spent a bunch of money he really didn't have. You know, trying to get us married, and um, she felt like she owed him at least a quarter. You know, kind of like giving a CEO a shot at a quarter. I, I said <laughs> in the in the, uh, in the church, I said, you know, they just didn't explain marriage to me. Somebody didn't sit me down and say, hey, there there are certain things that become secondary after you agree uh, through thick and thin. But uh, but I was honored, and I mean that sincerely. I was honored. I'm not sad 
I'm honestly not sad. You know, um, I actually closed my eulogy, and, and maybe this freaks people out. Maybe this shouldn't be for public edification, but a lot of our listeners um, share the same faith that I share. Um, my daughter is home from uh, USC, spring break. She goes back today. Uh, but anyway, she's um, she's been home all week, and, and, and obviously the family's upset and distraught over you know the loss of a loved one. But my daughter said that she had a dream. And in the dream, I mean, she says, I don't have a lot of intense dreams. I don't have a lot of uh, dreams that seem to be, you know, some people dream intensely and consistently and other people um, not so much. But she said, I had a dream. And in the dream, and you know, dreams are crazy anyway. Nothing makes any sense. But she said, in the dream, um, Grammy, which is her grandmother, uh, is crying. Uh, Everybody's getting ready for a funeral. And, you know, her grandmother's getting ready. Um, she said, mom's crying, put mascara on. She said, everybody's kind of chaotic. The whole dream, uh, the nature of the dream is fairly chaotic. But she says, um, and, it's, and it's clear, it's so intense, it's so clear. And she says, you know, everybody running around, everybody crying, everybody chaotic. And she goes by a door. We got French doors in this room in our house. And she goes by this, these French doors and she says, there's Papa. In, in almost a holographic fashion. He's not clear. It's almost like everything else is crystal clear and, and intensely, uh, you know, right there. I mean, colorful. And, I mean, she said it's almost like a, a high-definition dream. And there's Papa kind of in the um, in that room, and she said he's not clear. He's holographic almost in the way he looks. And he says, it's good and I'm good. And, and, I, and I guess, you wow. know, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, you, hmm. you know, it's – I think, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not theologically sound enough or scripturally sound enough to say this, but I think there are angelic forces that, that, that take care of those sorts of things. Um, I don't know when, I don't know how. Um, I could really freak you out and tell you about the time I'm on the porch at the beach and a bluebird flies by. I mean, we, we, anybody who has lost a loved one understands that there are times in your life certain things happen and it has to be kind of a friendly reminder from the hereafter, the the, the other realm that we don't understand clearly, um, and, and it's just obvious, you know. And and I know that probably if you're if you're uh, thinking about somebody who's not of the Christian faith and not of a um kind of the 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 resurrected Savior, uh, that would probably uh, who's this guy on the radio? Who's this nut job on the radio talking about these crazy things? Anyway, um. Honor to you, you know, eulogize my father-in-law that morning, and then we bugged out, went to um, went to the event. I'd been invited. Rev knows this. I got asked to be named uh, as an honorary co-chair of the uh, the Trump South Carolina rally. Uh, I found out Saturday that there was some um, there was some pushback on my being an honorary co-chair. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, Ooh, yeah, let's I, hear the story. Well, I, mean, I, you know, I don't know that we'll ever know the entire story, but some of the establishment forces within the party felt that my political misgivings may, may taint. Uh, you know, some of the, uh, some of the rally and, and these are folks that never cared much for me and still don't care much for me. They're, they're political insiders, they're establishment figures. And I mean, they didn't have to tell me who they are. I see the list. I know the ones <laughs> on there that don't care much for me. Uh, there's some that do and some that don't, but, um, you know, I, I'll give a blow by blow of what we, uh, of what I thought and, and, and what I gathered. I mean, I learned a lot about this movement. I talked to, um, what I'll argue some high ranking people within the Trump world, folks that I knew but it never really sat down and talked to for a period of time. I don't want to call names. I'll protect the innocent. But it was uh, one, two, three, yeah, four in his inner circle. 
I mean, there were four people there in his inner circle. I knew two of the four. Not, not, not intimately, but I knew two of the four to some degree, and I got to spend some time with them. You know, what's going on? What's next? What do we think this thing ends up? Uh, I'm a big believer in America first. I'm a big believer in, um, you know, Rev, it's interesting, and, and, and we could go on forever to this. I want to ask our listeners, because I think this is the most interesting part of, I mean, you are the movement. I mean, the, the 75 people in that hangar, and, and the president made a kind of a private visit, spoke for a few moments, and he's off to, to do his rock show or his wrestling match, as I like to say. But the 75 people in that room are not the movement. I mean, they're, they're to some degree, they're, they're a bit conflicted. You know, they, they, they've, they've been historically very gracious to the Republican Party. Um, they don't much care for Trump, but they get it. They understand. Um, it's, it's kind of a 40. Robert Cahaley and I talked a good bit Saturday. Uh, Robert was there, actually talked a good bit yesterday, and I'm going to try to get Robert to call in this week about the campaigns of Rice and um, and, and uh, Fry and Arrington and um, Nancy Mace. Those will be interesting. Trump has endorsed eight GOP candidates in the primaries. Two are in South Carolina. So 25% of the endorsed primary candidates for the House. Now, I'm talking about the Senate. I'm talking about in the House. So 25% are, are in our backyard. So it'll be a, um, a hot-button issue. It, it'll be a um, an issue we spend a lot of time talking about, but um, but I'll, I'll call Robert's name because Robert's there, and I mean Robert's been a host of uh, or a guest on this show uh, previously. But we were talking about a 40 proposition. Um, the people in that room believe Trump has forty percent of the Republican electorate, almost as a um. I mean, I wrote it down: a devotion to one man. I mean, it's a one-man movement. You know, the parking lot's full at the airport because one man. I mean, if we said we're having an Amer- a Save America rally or an America First rally and Trump's not going to be there, there's probably half as many cars. I mean, there's still people who believe in the cause, believe in the virtues of, you know, a, a reformation within the Republican Party, but not to the point of going to see me or you or Ron DeSantis or somebody else, J.D. Vance, um, Josh Hawley. Uh, you know, Russell Fry doesn't draw that big a crowd. Katie Arrington spoke. She doesn't draw that big a crowd. Trump's the big draw. I mean, he's the Beatles. He's Elvis. I mean, there is no doubt about that. Uh, that, that is emphatically and crystal clear. What Robert and I tried to understand, and, and I try to put the movement in a sentence and a paragraph, because Robert asked me this. He said, hey, let's talk tomorrow. But because the reason the people that advocated for me to stay as an honorary co-chair said, hey, nobody understands the ground level of this movement as good as he does. I mean, if you think your, your, your governor and your lieutenant governor and your senator today understand this movement, uh, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But this guy's on the radio. He's a former office holder, and he speaks to these people every single day. And they have a very um, closely held relationship. Uh, they like him. He likes them. And they talk every single morning. The, the, the great regret in all of this is we're not all over the state of South Carolina. I mean, this is a moment in time that I would love to be hearing from people, not just of our listening area, but people all over this great state of South Carolina. Ori County will have a lot to say about this Rice race. And, and trust me, guys, the Rice race is the, I mean, it's the Waterloo. I mean, it, of the Trump, of Trump, the man, is this a devotion to one man or is this a movement that can outlive um, his, his presence. I mean, his, uh, he, he carries 
Uh, he, he's uh, Revity walks in the room. I mean, it's just obvious. I mean, he's con- he's in control of that. And uh, and once again, half the people in that room didn't like him, but they felt they needed to be in the room. I mean, they've historically been kind of the Republican Party, and they, uh, you know, that they would probably, in all honesty, they would probably rather him have never happened because they kind of had control of the Republican Party. So here's the question before we take our break. Is it a 40-60 proposition? By that, I mean, if Trump rides off into the sunset, does he take 40% of the Republican base with him, or does he take 60% of the Republican base with him? That, and nobody knows the answer to that. I mean, it's a complicated question, but here's the way I characterized it. And I told Robert this yesterday. Um, my, my, my understanding, my interpretation um, of America First is this. Is it worth closing three plants that employ half the town to save a dollar per golf shot shirt or brake pad and everyone over the age of 60 end up on meth or opioids? I mean, that, 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 is, that, that is what led to this movement. Once again, is it worth closing three plants that employ half the town to save a dollar per golf shirt or brake pad and everyone under the age of 60 end up on meth or opioids? That's J.D. Vance's hillbilly elegy. Only about a third of the people in that room of 75 people in the pre, you know, what they call the VIP pre-rally event, have any understanding at all of that world. I mean, these are, I mean, you and I would consider these people to be jet setters. You know what I mean? They're the movers and shakers of American politics. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they don't, they don't have much tolerance nor patience for the people outside. I, I told my daughter, she's with me. And I said, Libby, these aren't Trump's people. Trump's people are out there in the cold, standing in line, walked a mile and a half to park. You know, th- that, that I can relate to all that, well, by I mean, the way, th- that's the movement. The movement was not the 75 people in this room. And there's kind of a tug of war, Rev. I mean, there's kind of a um, a battle for, for superiority. You know, it, are the 75 people in that room and their checkbooks and their political connections and their longevity of service? Are those people going to overwhelm the 10,000 people who waited in freezing cold weather to hear um, a man speak that they are loyally devoted to? I mean, it is so complicated, and I have clarity of understanding much more today than I did Friday before attending the event. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here is Dale in the PD. Good morning, Dale. Morning, guys. Um, We've got a primary coming up. And I think that's going to answer our question, Ken, you know, you know the 40-60 thing. I'm sure a good bit of those 75 people in that hangar are going to be voting for Tom Rice regardless because they just don't like Donald Trump or anything he says. But I'm willing to bet that, and, and, and here's the difference. I don't know who Russell Fry is. I've never heard of him before. But I know that Ken Ard and Donald Trump said that, that this is their guy. And, and I'm going to do some research, but I'm, you know, I'm already leaning because people that I trust have already made their viewpoints known. So real quick here, we're going to have a pretty good idea, at least in the PD region of South Carolina, about the whole 4060 thing. Uh, you guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate it. I, I want to make clear, I, I, I don't have any devotion to the man. I mean, I enjoy Trump. I, I've been around Trump twice. 
I mean, he's been consistently consistent. I mean, he's exactly who in, in both settings. I mean, it's not – Trump has this persona that is an entertainer when he gets in front of a big audience. He's very different. I mean, at, at the city center when he was a candidate for president, I was – um. I mean, a, guy, a friend of mine was appointed ambassador to Switzerland, and that's my buddy, and he was very kind to me and gracious. Ed McMullen was on the radio with us last week. Ed was one of the early guys that got on the Trump campaign, um, and I thought I sensed something about the um, the Trump campaign that could be successful. So this goes back to the Republican primary. I mean, you know, Wake Up Carolina was one of the early, early, early um, media endeavors. I mean, we're small. We're minuscule compared to some of these others, but we were still one of the early, early media outlets who said um, this guy can win. We have an ownership um, in Watertown, New York. Our, our community broadcasters has a station in Watertown, New York. And, and when I said that I thought Trump could win, they found it a little bit humorous. In fact, to the point they got me on their radio they show. They wanted to interview you. To, to explain why I thought Trump was going to win the Republican nomination in South Carolina as well. Um, I mean, it was crystal clear to me. And the reason Trump was going to win, and I want to make clear to Dale and everybody, and I think most of us understand this, there are some people that are devoted to a single man. Remember when Drew McKissick, SEGOP chairman earlier, excuse me, toward the end of last week came on the, I think it was Friday when he came on, and he said, you know, we've seen this before. No, we've not seen this before. The Tea Party does not compare to this. The Christian coalition does not compare to this. How much of this is a devotion to one man and how much of this is a political movement predicated on what I'd explain? And, and you would explain it differently, Rev. I mean, Dale would explain it differently. And, 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 you know, Rujan would explain it differently. And Jam would explain it differently. And Larry would explain it very differently. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have the right to explain what the movement means to the masses. I know what it means to me. And Robert asked me to write down in a sentence or a paragraph uh, what it does mean. And I, and I wrote it down. I'll repeat it. You know, there are some out in that in that in that field, in that airfield, waiting on Trump to speak. That have this unbridled devotion to a man. I mean, he's larger than life. He's um, you know, they they want him to run it under any circumstance or condition. If you and I debate internally, um, hey, why why don't why doesn't Trump become the kingmaker? No, no, why? Because the, a lot of their motivations or a devotion to a single man. I understand that. I mean, I think it's a bit unusual, but I get it. I mean, he, you know, he kind of, um, he was everything to everybody as far as they're concerned. I mean, he was the wrecking ball. He was the rehabilitator. He was the the reformer. He was the, I mean, kind of a savior in, in a weird sort of way. There are a lot of similarities in, in Trump and Obama in that they have this following. It's not a base. Obama doesn't not, I mean, it's a base, but it's, it's, it's much more intense and deep than that. Um, Trump has one that I've never, I mean, I've never seen anything like this. But when you walk into that airplane hangar with those 75 people, I mean, I, I, know, I know 60 of the 75. There are probably 15 there I didn't know. They're out of towners. But the, the majority of the others, I, I'm, I'm aware of. I know to, to some degree. I know some more than or better than others. But, but Trump loses that room. I mean, if, if you put Jeb Bush on the ballot and Donald Trump on the ballot and let those 75 people in that airplane hangar, Trump loses. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Tom Rice wins. Russell Fry loses that. Um, you know, Katie, Katie Arrington loses that. America First loses that. Because none of these people in that room have been exposed to what I argue 
is the deindustrialization, the hollowing out of the middle class. So what, what really birthed America first? And I explain it like this, is closing three plants, which employ half the town to save a dollar per golf shirt or brake pad, worth putting everybody or everybody over the age of 60 on meth and opioids. Because that's, that's kind of the, I mean, Robert and I talked a lot about the, the, the primary line of demarcation. I mean, there, there are some secondary lines, you know, uh, there, there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that, a little bit of something else. It's, it's mainly globalism, free and fair trade. I mean, when you really break this movement down, it's primary force. I mean, the primary force is Trump. I mean, nobody can deliver that message as forcefully, and I, would, I don't want to say articulately, because that's probably not fair, um, as forcefully and to the point as he does. I mean, he's the bull in the China shop. Those people want the bull in the China shop. But, but the, message, the, the message is what I hope sustains. Trump will not, I mean, even if he runs in 2024, eventually rides out the sunset. I mean, at some point in time, Trump goes where every other politician in history has gone, out to pasture. I mean, that's just a reality. It, it, you know, we believe it's time for Biden to be put out to pasture, but he's the president of the United States. But, but it's, it's the most interesting, and, and I know more about it this morning, but I'm, I'm, I'm still confused by it. Is it a 60-40 proposition? Is Donald Trump, I mean, if Trump took his ball and went home, and basically told those people in that field, don't you support the Republicans because they're not worth your support. Is that 40% of the party or is it 60% of the party? You can bet your, I'm a cuss early this morning. You ready? You can bet your sweet ass it ain't 20%. I mean, I know the Republicans in that hangar want it to be 20. They, they, they've tried to convince themselves this is only a 15% movement, a 20% movement. No, no. It's somewhere between 40 and 60 and we'll find out, as Dale said, um, in, in one of these races, in the, in the Tom Rice-Russell Fry race, we'll find out whether, indeed, he is the 800-pound gorilla, the 300-pound gorilla, or the 1,200-pound gorilla. Now, Charleston's different. The Arrington-Mace race is going to be very different. Trump didn't win that race or win that, um, that, that district by 28 points. I mean, his approvals in Horry County, I told you earlier, about 83 84%. Um, his approvals in this congressional district are north of 80. In, in, the, in the first congressional district, they're probably 65, 66, 67. When you, when you ask about, you know, Trump and another Republican. Now, if you say Trump and a Democrat, they get 80% again because Republicans hold their nose and vote for Donald Trump. The majority do. Not all, but the majority do. But when you talk about primary voters, you know, in other words, a Trump-endorsed candidate and a— um, and a candidate running as a, let, let's say, I mean, Rice and, and Russ, Russell Fry are the great example of this. Rice voted to do what? Impeach Donald Trump. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know how much, I mean, when you talk about breaking ranks, let, let's say you got a bill on homosexuality, you got a bill on abortion, you got a bill on taxes, you got a bill on trade. Um, the Republican Party has always taken pride in itself being able to kind of find different factions within the party. Um, Rev and Ken disagree a little bit on trade. You know, they'll eventually get there, but they, they have this fundamental disagreement about free trade or fair trade or, you know, taxes or uh, regulations or whatever. But, but impeachment's a different animal. I mean, impeachment is an entirely different animal. Ten Republicans in Congress decided to impeach Donald Trump, a Republican president. That, that's, that's, that's a pretty aggressive vote. And you've got to believe, 
Um, you know, I saw a quote yesterday by Tom Rice that, you know, Trump is motivated by spite. Who's not to some degree? Right. I mean, who does not see? I'm not saying revenge is a good strategy. I'm not saying spite is smart. But we're not Vulcans. We're, we're all creatures of, of emotion. And if you voted to impeach Donald Trump, do you believe that he was going to take a pass on trying to recruit somebody to run against you? But that, that's a little bit naive I would, to I would me. say, would you? I mean, I would ask oh, if Congressman I was, Rice. Well, I mean, if, I, if I was the president of the United States as a Republican and 10 Republicans voted to impeach me, you better believe I, w- I would spend a lot of my energy, effort, and time trying to find somebody to run against them in a Republican primary. There were some who believed he'd take a pass. No. Now, Trump's not the kind of guy that's going to take that's going to take a pass, and we'll find out sooner sooner than later. Now, there's one wild card in all of this, and the wild card is that it really played its way into a local election we'll talk about on the other side of this break. But, um, you know, we independents and Democrats can vote in primaries. There's not going to be a Democrat primary for Congress in the 7th Congressional District, certainly not an independent race in the 7th Congressional District, and we live in a state that allows – um, you know, if you're, if you're, doesn't matter if you're Republican or not, nonpartisan voter registration is a reality in South Carolina. So that makes it even more complicated. Um, there is no barrier limited or limiting um, primary voters to vote for Republicans who aren't Republicans. And, and I got to believe that if you're Mace or Rice, that's got to be some part of your strategy. Let's convince Democrats who don't like Trump, independents who don't like Trump, to vote for the two candidates who are running against Trump-endorsed candidates. That, that's kind of a, I mean, I, I believe that's going to be a tremendous, I think that is a strategy of the Mace campaign. I think it's a strategy of the Rice campaign. Now, obviously, you can't get public and say, hey, let's find some Democrats to vote in the Republican primary. Let's find some independents to vote in the Republican primary so the Republican voters don't really decide their own primary. But that's going to be an attempt by both campaigns. They're going to be forced to do that. If you believe the polls, and Trump is as rock solid in Ori and the PD, you got to think about doing that. You've got to engage an audience other than the typical, traditional Republican primary voter. Does that matter? I'll give an example of why it does. In a local election, just recently, on the other side. Remember we talked a little bit about um, Liz Cheney in Wyoming and Harriet Hageman. She's a, um, a land use attorney. That doesn't sound like a big deal, but you get out in Wyoming, about land use attorneys, and oh, remember bet. we talked about cattle uh, regulators and all that sort of stuff? A lot of land. Yeah, you'd rather have trouble with the AG than you had the cattle regulator or a land use attorney when you got it in the world of ranching and, and uh, you know, farming and whatnot. But, but anyway, um, they tried to pass a bill in Wyoming that would prohibit crossover voting. In other words, Republicans decide Republican primaries, Democrats decide Democrat primaries, independents. Apparently, you don't care enough for either party to declare, so we'll see you in the general election. And you, you kind of close down what they call closed primaries and not crossover voting. Um, but it failed in Wyoming. And Wyoming has, what, um, 51 of 60 um, House members in Wyoming are Republicans. So the Republicans um, continue to support crossover, uh, crossover voting. Can Rice or Mace find enough Democrats and anti-Trump independents to cross over. There is no way. I'll go on the record. There's no way Nancy Mace wins a Republican primary. Uh, that's unfair to say. There's no way Tom Rice wins a Republican primary without crossover support. 
Uh, district 1's a little bit district than dist- District 7. Trump's approvals are probably 20% higher in District 7 than they are in District 1. And we know there was a, a Democrat actually won that District 1 seat last yeah, time. Joe Cunningham. Yeah. So, so Trump's, um, Trump's in- endorsement is not as significant in this first congressional district as it is in the seventh congressional. But but I'll say this. Uh, other people believe this. They just won't say it. Trump can't, excuse me, Rice can't win a Republican primary. I mean, he can win a Republican primary if independents vote in the Republican primary. And I'm talking about independents who don't care much for Trump. If uh, if Democrats obviously don't care much for Trump, I bet you there. I mean, if Trump's approvals with Democrats are more than 2%, <laughs> somebody's lying. I mean, it's probably, you know, one or two or three percent approvals. Um, and I've had a lot of people say, well, there's no way. I mean, that's, that's just political theater. I mean, that, that's radio show fodder. Eh, maybe, maybe not. I'll give you an example. Um, Jay Jordan got more votes in a Republican primary than anybody ever has, including Senator Hugh Leatherman, except Mike Rickenbaugh. D- the Jordan campaign, I mean, I know this. They, they believed that they got 5,000 votes. There was no way to lose. They got 5,700 and get, got beat by 500 um, votes. In a Republican primary in that Senate district, normally the African-American turnout is about 200. It's been as high as 280. You can go back and look at some of the voter rolls. Now, you can't tell who they voted for, but you can tell who voted and what, you know, what race, I mean, what, what sex and race they are. And in the most recent Republican primary that involved Mike Rickenbaugh and Jay Jordan, Mike's African-American, Republican, that number went from about 200 to 1,000. I think the number is about 1,031 African-Americans voted in that Senate. So you had about 800 more African-Americans. Now, now we've argued for diversity, right? So there's kind of two parts to this. Did Rick and Bob do a good job at convincing African-Americans Republican is the way forward? They need to ditch that, um, you know, that monolithic vote for the Democrats. Or do they vote for an African-American just because he's an African-American? I don't know the answer to that. You don't know the answer to that. I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to that. Um but, but crossover voting is a big deal in a primary if there's uniqueness in a situation. There is uniqueness with a Trump endorsement in the 7th Congressional District. That will motivate what? That will motivate Democrats to vote against the Trump-endorsed candidate. That will vote or that will motivate um, anti-Trump independents to get out and vote. So in a Republican primary, I'll be the first to say it. There's no way that Tom Rice wins a Republican primary if only Republican primary voters vote. But their strategy will probably be to figure out a way to drive turnout with some of these um, some of these anti-Trump independents, anti-Trump. And it, I mean, it can work. Uh, Rick and Ball wins by 500 votes. Jordan gets more votes than Leatherman ever did and still loses. Rick and Ball, or the African-American turnout goes from about 200, maybe as high as 300. But I've seen some of the elections where it's a 280, 285, somewhere thereabout. But it's never anywhere near 1,000. Now, now you can be a Republican and say, well, those African-Americans who normally vote Democrat are the ones that won that election for Mike Rickenbaugh. Or you can say, wow, Mike Rickenbaugh did a real good job at encouraging African-Americans to vote for the Republican because this is the party they need to be a part of. Once again, you don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. We won't know the answer to that for many, many, many years to come. Here will be the interesting part. If Rick and Bob runs as a Republican and African-American and an African-American runs as a Democrat, how do the African-Americans vote in that election? I mean, maybe we never see that scenario, but th- those are some of the, um, the crossover voting could be a big deal 
in the 7th Congressional District now that Trump's decided to endorse and make a visit to town. Somebody asked me, why did he go to the beach? Well, I, the beach is too complicated to get in and out of. Not not for airplanes. I mean, airplanes land and take off. Biggest Gulf Stream I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I didn't know. I did not know they made Gulf Streams that big. You're not surprised, yeah. are you? Of course I mean, not. For you and Pamplico, Gulf Streams private jet. <laughs> back back in a minute. 843-661-0937. takes Mondays to make Fridays kind of an exciting. Uh, the the former president in our hometown uh, of Florence, in the PD region. Uh, it was stand to reason. I had a lot of people like, why not the beach? I mean, that's where all the voters are. Fifty two percent of all the votes cast in the 7th Congressional District will be in Horry County. Um, but they made a decision that logistically it was much easier for the attendees to get via the interstate, you know, to Florence. You, we talk about infrastructure and you talk about the, the, the growth in Horry County and how complicated, I mean, on a normal day to get from point A to point B in Horry County, and they knew that if they dumped an extra ten or 15,000 people there, you asked me a second ago about attendance, I don't have any idea. They were expecting somewhere between 10 and 15. The weather, you know, had the threat of rain early in the day. And, and all week it looked like rain on Saturday. And then it got much colder, windy and colder as the day went on. Um, that probably had something to do with attendance. But it's like a carnival. I mean, it's like a NASCAR Crazy. race. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never. I mean, my, my daughter's 19. We get out of the car and are making our way to the hangar. And she says in like 30 seconds, does he have any idea what he's created? And I said, oh, you better believe he knows. <laughs> I can assure you he knows exactly what he's created. And he's plenty smart enough to know that the people in that hangar are using him, so he uses them. The Army is out in that field. He knows that. They're, I mean, he's got to play the other side of it. I mean, he got to whine and dine, and they whine and dine, and you're using them, and they're using you. But he's well aware that the people in that seven, the 75 people in that airplane hangar they write checks. The people in that field are part of the revolution. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Monday after. What do they call it? Monday after the Masters. This is Monday <laughs> after the um, the meeting, the stump meeting, unlike any I've ever seen. Um, that's the first one of those I've ever gone to. I mean, the, one of the, the, the rally at the city center was as a candidate for president of the United States. It was at the beginning of this movement. I mean, the, the, the city center was full. Uh, there were people everywhere. Um, but I've never seen anything like when we parked Saturday afternoon. I mean, it was like being at a NASCAR race or being at the fair or being at a ball game that included tailgating. Um, there are, um, I mean, if you want a shirt and a hat, you can get a shirt and a hat. Rest assured, mm -hmm. uh, there, there are a lot of people profiteering off of this, um, this political movement. But, but we're still no closer to knowing the, the answer to the question, you know, is all of this about Trump running again in, uh, in 2024? You asked me a second ago. Well, yeah, when he was on the air with us last week, I mean, he kind of, just like he always does, he just kind of allude, you know, put, puts it out there, maybe alludes to it. He said, we're going to do it again, is what he said on the air with us. And then, of course, he mentioned uh, taking back the White House during his uh, speech in Florence on Saturday and said, well, who do you suppose is going to do that? Well, I, I would imagine a lot of this has to do with how he does or how he fares or how the endorsed candidates fare in the midterms. I mean, if the endorsed candidates, if, if, if Katie Arrington beats Nancy Mace, if Russell Fry beats Tom Rice, if Harriet Hageman beats Liz Cheney, um, Murkowski in Alaska, he's endorsed a Republican there. I can't think of her name, but he's endorsed a Republican um, there. If he's successful in these 
endorsements he's making in, in a wide variety of places, yeah, I mean, I think he runs again. I mean, I don't think he can help himself if he thinks he has a 50% chance of being successful. Um, does he draw opposition in the primary? I would imagine. But here's the critical question. Is it Ron DeSantis or Larry Hogan? I mean, if it's Ron DeSantis who has kind of fancied himself as an America First Republican, I mean, you're in a dogfight. You know, is it a devotion to a man? Is it 40 or 60%? If 40% are devoted to the man and 60% are devoted to the movement and 60% believe that DeSantis can continue the movement, then DeSantis would be uh, the guy that may run against Trump and beat him. I don't think DeSantis would do that. I think DeSantis would wait. Why take the chance of... um? of alienating yourself from the Trump supporters because they're your supporter. I mean, if, if you asked a Trump supporter, who do you want to run for president? They'd say Donald Trump. If you say, who's your second choice? I bet the majority would say Ron DeSantis. I mean, he wouldn't get all the votes, sure. but he would get a large percentage of the votes. So if you're DeSantis and you're a young guy, why not wait? You know, let Trump work himself through the system. I mean, if he decides to run in 2024, let's say he wins 75% of the races he's endorsed in then that shows that this is a, this is much more about a devotion to a man. Um, he did say this more than one time. He has said this. You got to let people know I've endorsed you. That leads me to believe I'm not going to do that for you. I mean, to Russell Fry and Katie Arrington, I've endorsed you. It's up to you and your campaign to get the word out to the masses that I've endorsed you because most people to watch, watching Seinfeld. I mean, as many people as there were, in that parking lot or in that airfield Saturday, there are far more than weren't, right? I mean, we talk about Tucker Carlson as the largest audience on cable television when it comes to politics, but there are a lot more people not watching Tucker than there are. There are a lot more people not in that airfield um, than there are. And this goes back to the 60-40 proposition. There were two office holders um, in the room, and, and I know both and have known both for a good while, and we started talking about you know, Trump and this phenomenon, and all of us agreed we'd never seen anything like it. None of us agreed on we understand it. I mean, we agree with one thing. We've never seen anything like this. The three of us had varying opinions on our understanding of it. Um, I still believe that the movement is most effective when it's not a devotion to a man, but rather an ideal or a principle or a governing it's not really a governing philosophy, Reb. Um, it's it's more of the way we've governed. I mean, it's not a philosophy. It is a. Um, well, last week, Tony and I, from Tony from Sumter and I, had this, um, you know, somewhat intelligent debate or conversation about the uh, the Fed. You know, the activist Fed and the balance sheet of the Fed. And I made a pledge to our listeners that if I'm going to throw around the sentence, you know, the the balance sheet of the Fed says then I need to have some understanding of what it is the balance sheet of the Fed says. I mean, it, you know, it can't be like a Seinfeld episode with write-off, but they do it all the time, Jerry. No, and then Tony and I established, I think, an agreement that there are about $4.5 trillion that were created out of thin air that never made its way to Main Street. I mean, it was basically sent straight to Wall Street, sent straight to uh, corporate bond purchasing and and treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And, I mean, do you believe anybody in that field benefited from that? I'll assure you the 75 people in that hangar did, and that's the complexity of this movement. The people in that field don't have the ability to raise the money necessary to fund a presidential campaign. 
I mean, would you agree with that or not? Of course. I mean, unless they're willing to write, write $20 checks. We had that debate last yeah, week. In mass. In mass. I mean, right. You better believe it. If 50 million people who believe in this movement, whether they're devoted to a man or, or, or they're the ones like me that, I mean, is it worth closing three plants or factories that employ half the town to save a dollar per golf shirt or brake pad um, and everyone over the, under the age of 60 ends up on meth or opioids? I mean, that, 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 to, that's the theme of the campaign. And if we can figure out a way for 50 million of the 75 million that voted for him to contribute $20 annually to some super PAC that is managed or run by somebody highly effective but loyal to the cause, and I'm talking about the, the, the nationalist movement, um, the America First movement, the anti-globalist, anti-interventionist movement, then yeah, you can fund it. But we've never shown the ability to do that. And because you've not shown the ability to do that, you need those 75 people in that airplane hangar. And wherever Trump goes next, they'll have a little VIP event. And there'll be 75 or 100 people writing checks for 30. But, you know, rumor was somebody in that room had contributed $5 million to Donald Trump's Save America Super PAC. I mean, I don't know it, but rumor was somebody in that room, Saturday in Florence, had contributed $5 million mm. to Save America. I can tell you who it wasn't. I don't know who it was, but I can assure you it was not me, nor the circle I run in. I mean, the, the circle I run in uh, don't have that sort of horsepower, but there's somebody in that room. So, I mean, if the super PAC has over $100 million and he's going to, you know, spend some of the money here and spend some of the money there, um, I think the the takeaway or what people were trying to find out in that room, I'm not talking about in the field, but in the room, how much is how much is Trump willing to spend how much is Save America willing to spend in the 1st and 7th Congressional um, District? Um, I would imagine the people most interested in that are Nancy Mace and Tom Rice. There, there's one thing, an endorsement carries some weight. An endorsement with an expenditure of, say, a half million dollars. I mean, that's the game changer. If Save America chooses to spend a half million dollars in the Arrington Mace race, I mean, that's a game changer. If they spend a half million dollars in the Rice Fry race, and let's be fair here. There's still Barbara Arthur. There's still Mark McBride. There's still Ken Richardson. So, so let's be fair to all candidates. Uh, and I want to clear up something. Dale said a second ago that, that I've told Pete, and I've, I've, not, I've not done this. I mean, I'm, I'm neutral in this race. I mean, there is no question. And the reason I'm neutral, um, we've scheduled a debate. And I didn't host the, the debate for the Senate seat because I publicly supported one candidate over the other. I'm not doing that here. And I've made no bones about it. I'm not apologizing that I'm America first. I mean, understand that. So I'll let you interpret via whatever you choose to interpret there. But I, you know, I've not picked a horse in this race and I'm not encouraging people to do one thing or another because I want to maintain a eh, little bit of integrity. <laughs> but when I, when I sit behind a podium and ask candidates a question, um, as, as fair minded as I possibly can. So, you know, I'll let you, the people decide who you want your Congress a uh, man or woman to be, and we'll have a debate sometime. I think in May, if I'm not mistaken, do we have a yep. do we have a date set, Rep? Uh We're working on it. It's uh, early May, and we're just working on the details. Okay, yet, so but, but we'll we'll you know we'll have it. it it'll be over the airways. Yep. Um, we think it'll be in a venue near you if you're living in Florence. Uh, we we think we've uh, negotiated a venue for the event. We'll mm -hmm. let you know um, as soon as our people say we can make it public. But um, it's all coming together though very nicely. Well, and I'm but honored there's a to lot do of work. That. But but I'm, you know, if I were if I were in 
endorsing a candidate or, or publicly supporting a candidate, I'd be leery of doing that. But but I you know I'm not, and I and I don't feel leery of doing it because I want to do um I want to do a job that you the people deserve, and by that I mean questions that are timely that 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 need to be answered. Um, maybe a little bit more aggressive than um, Candy Crowley or someone like that. I mean, I want to get these candidates discussing issues with one another. But but at the center of this will be uh, the impeachment vote. I mean, it'll have to be at the center of this because we're probably not having a race if there's not an impeachment vote. I mean, we probably are having an incumbent member of Congress um, going back to office, as they historically do, to what, 92% of all members of Congress who run for re-election uh, win that re-election. We were talking a second ago about the African-Americans uh, who voted in the recent Senate race in South Carolina. In the, um, in the When Senator Leatherman passed away, um, we knew that that would be a hotly contested race. Jay Jordan and Mike Rickenbaugh vote, both um, announced their candidacy. Mike Rickenbaugh wins that race for over Jay Jordan by about 500 votes. Um, the Jordan campaign believed if they could get somewhere around 5,100 votes, I mean, there was some thought 4,500, but if they could get 5,100 votes, there's no way they'd lose. Well, they got 5,700, and they lost by 500. So what do experts know at the end of the day? But a lot of this had to do, um, we're talking about crossover elections and Rick and Bob being an African-American Republican, um, and African-Americans came out and voted. I mean, there, there is no doubt about it to the tune of um, a little better than 1,000 when historically two to 300 have voted. Now, if you're the Jordan campaign, you say, well, we won the Republican primary because that many African-Americans never vote. They, they crossed over. He talked to a bunch of Democrats in the running. Uh, but can we hold them? I mean, don't we argue that the Republican Party's biggest impediment is stale, pale, and male? I mean, I've argued that for several years over the airways. We've got to we've got to find diversity in the party. Rick and Bot did a good job of reaching out to people, you know, who um historically have not voted for the Republican. But when you look at the national polling, and um, there's a Wall Street Journal poll out this morning that has Republicans winning Hispanics by nine percentage points. I mean, that's unfathomable. And the majority of reason they're voting for the Republican is a failure of the Democrats and Joe Biden, but it's this America first agenda. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an agenda that seems to care about America's working class. It, it, also, um, it also suggests that the number of um, African-Americans, black voters, who favored a Democrat for Congress is down from 56 points to 27 points. So, I mean, there's a 35% swing. Now, what what does that mean? Who knows what that means? That's talking about favoring one candidate over another, favoring one party over another. But but, but the Democrat, let me rephrase that. The Democratic margin, stick with me for a second, uh, among black voters was 56 points, um, Support for Republican candidates have risen from 12 to 27 points. That's kind of the takeaway of this. Um, the 12% of African Americans who say they support a Republican, per the Wall Street Journal, is now 27%. If 27% of African Americans vote for a Republican, Democrats don't win anywhere except Connecticut, Massachusetts, you know, what we call the, um, the affluent Northeast liberal. I mean, there's still that element ingrained 
in our political process, and they'll do all they'll always do well in 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 that world uh, with, with that population. But if twelve percent of African Americans voting Republicans uh, voting Republican turns into twenty seven percent, it's game set match. I mean that's just a reality, and um, and I'm hopeful that the Rick and Boff phenomenon is something that convinces African Americans in our part of the state to consider being a Republican. I mean, that doesn't happen in one election cycle. I mean, this will be a, I mean, it'll, it'll be a grind. It'll take an election, then another election, then another election. But, but I just don't believe the, um, and I'll go back to the people in the field. Um, the people in that field Saturday in Florence, the airport, um, may, maybe the majority of that is a devotion to one man, but, but secondarily that there's this belief in a political philosophy that is beginning to permeate itself in the Republican Party. Um, J.D. Vance probably does as good a job as anybody. Here's the struggle, Rev. The 75 people in the airplane hangar don't have anything in common with the thousands of people in the field, except they vote Republican. Historically, the people in that airplane hangar have voted Republican for a very self-serving reason. Uh, The people in the field, you could argue, now are voting Republican for an equally self-serving um, a reason, but I think it's authentic and it's genuine. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. I was looking through uh, the internet just a second ago. National Review has an article up. Democratic interlopers could diminish cl- Trump's clout in GOP primaries. Some of what I've been talking mm-hmm. about here earlier, um, if you find enough anti-Trump independents and anti-Trump Democrats to cross over and vote in the Republican primary when they don't have an important uh, election, you could diminish Trump's clout. Some of what we talked about earlier, um, I mean, it's highly likely the first congressional district. It's somewhat likely in the seventh. Let's go to the phone. Here is Verd, Marlboro County. Morning, Verd. Good morning. Morning. How about this weekend? It was pretty crazy, pretty cold, but pretty crazy. <laughs> well, I think if anybody's uh, interested in trying to disrupt uh, the Republican Party, they evidently didn't go through what we went through to Saturday for 12 hours. <laughs> Freezing cold, blowing rain all day long, and what, I don't know, guess, 10, 10 15,000 people. I'm not sure what, the, I never did see a number. It's more than 10, uh, less than 15, or that's that's what I'm hearing as estimates. That's exactly what I think, between 10 and 15 and all day long, it never diminished the uh, excitement waiting on President Trump. And uh, when it talking, I was sitting about, I think, about 30, 40 feet from the stage. And I talked to one of our officials of state, and I said, well, I assume Mr. Trump's going to come on a little bit earlier. They said, no, he's coming on at 7. Oh, Lord, it's going to be rough out here at 7 o'clock. And it was <laughs> about 36 degrees, 20-mile-an-hour wind, 16 chill factor. But, uh I made a post last night. I said there was two storylines uh, Saturday to the uh, um, to the event. The weather and and how people stood by and never did leave is uh, a tremendous asset to the people that support the Republican Party and, and President Trump. His his staying power. And then the second thing was uh, the speech that President Trump gave. It maybe to me, and I've listened to just about all of them. Maybe his best ever tone down some of the rhetoric that Ken, you know, both of us get uh, grief because of some of the rhetoric, but that was toned down. It was a great speech, on message, uh, calm, delivered about as well as anybody could deliver it. 
And I think from looking over the internet, the people that did see it either in person or the people that looked at it on the on TV, uh, it, everybody says the same thing. It was maybe his best speech ever. Thank you, Bird. Appreciate it. appreciate all you do, and I mean that sincerely. It's kind of reward to all the Republican hands that do the the dirty work, the hard lifting, the heavy lifting, uh, the blocking and tackling, the grunt work um, that is not easily recognizable nor rewarded. But these guys are the uh, they're the bedrock of the party. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And there's a lot of disgruntlement within within the party now. Now I've got on a source, a fairly reliable source, that Trump was talked out of being highly critical of Nikki Haley. That's very interesting to me. But I, I've got on good sources that um that wow. he intended to be highly critical of Nikki Haley. Um, and Nick, Nikki Haley endorsed Nancy Mace. Well, I mean, Nikki Haley's too. name is not on the uh, Save America. The um. The honorary co-chairs included about every that. current office holder, some former office holders, um, some of these who have really invested in the America First movement. Um, Nikki Haley and Mick Mulvaney, I was reminded, were the two names um, notably absent. And Trump had intended to be, <laughs> you can imagine this, highly critical of the former governor, but was talked out of it. And I'll tell you the reason he was talked out of it. The message needed to be about Russell Fry and Katie Arrington. I mean, it didn't need to be about, you know, Trump having an argument or debate with the former governor of South Carolina. Um, Trump needed to make sure the takeaway was these two congressional candidates that I am endorsing and in support of. I'll tell you, Rev, I am unbelievably interested in what happens in this election. I mean, I, this, this is political. I mean, this is political science 101. I mean, it really is. You've got a yeah, um, yeah, for, for more reasons than just choosing the next congressperson, well, I mean, right? The, the argument I've made historically is endorsements don't matter. You know, endorsements are not transferable. I mean, I've never believed that. I mean, if someone's running for a, a county council seat and and we endorse as a member of Congress, I just don't buy that. I, I think the people of South Carolina are, are too independent-minded, stubborn, um, convicted to what they believe. They're not going to listen to a fellow politician tell them, the voter, who they you know need to support. I think they listen to be informed. I mean, Dale said earlier this morning, you know, we listen to you because we know you keep up with it a little bit closer than we do. And when you say this candidate's worthy of consideration, we consider that. But I don't believe that voters follow blindly, you know, what what someone of recognition says in the political world. I hope not. I think, you know, voters need to be more independent-minded, need to be more informed, more opinionated when it comes to that. Um, Trump's different. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, his endorsement is a different animal when he uh, and, and once again this goes to the debate we've had this morning about you know how much of this movement is a devotion to one man and how much is this movement about you know the the, the town that had three plants closed to save a dollar on brake pads and golf shirts and now everybody under the age of 60 is on meth or opioids I mean, that, that's where I land. My, mine is not a devotion. I find Trump unbelievably entertaining. I find him charismatic. I find him uh, interesting. I find him revealing. I find him to be unbelievably provocative. Um, can, can he get a bit indecent? Yeah. Does he go over the line? Yeah. But but that's the nature of his personality. But he, his endorsement matters. Rest assured. Let's go to the phone. Okay. Rev's doing double duty over here trying to take another call while we've got this other. First day, Cato's not with us. So instead of Batman, Robin, and uh, a sidekick, it's just Batman, Robin back in the fold. Are we ready now? Okay. Yep, ready. Okay. It's David in the PD. 
Hello, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken. Uh, I was going to say, man, if, if if I was in Las Vegas the other day, knowing the weather conditions, we could have done a bet on is Trump going to wear a hat or not. And I would have won that bet because uh, I knew he's going to wear a hat. Man, all the folks that went out there and put up with that as far as that weather. And I'll, I'll ask you as the two-way football player and a Baptist, what do you think the crowd was? Somewhere between 10 and 15, probably closer 10 to 10. But, but I think, I'd, I'll say okay. this, David, had the weather cooperated, I think there could have been 18,000, 20,000 people there. I really believe that. Um, but I think there was probably 12-ish. That would be my estimate. And I, I was going to ask you, too, because you, you're close to community with restaurants and all that. I'm more in tune with the hotel business. Um do you think there was a bump as far as hotel and uh, restaurant business? Without question. <laughs> there is no doubt. There, there is no doubt. We have a sponsor on this show. I don't think he'd mind me saying Roger's Barbecue. I mean, the guy called me and said, okay. hey, man, I am flooded. I am flooded, have been for two days with some of these rally attendees. Um, we actually had the Fry Campaign reach out to us. Uh, Russell called me one day toward the end of last week and needed some rooms. And he said, I'll swap some tickets for some rooms. And I reached out to a um, a friendly, and he said, "Man, I don't have any rooms. We, we, you know, we got people from Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, uh, Alabama, and, and that was the Trump camp. I mean, the Save America made the decision because when they announced coming to Florence, I said, "Why not the beach?" But Trump thought it was going to be real hard, not for the planes, not not for the wealthy, not for the well to do, but for the for the attendees to get to the beach was going to be real difficult, complicated. So let's have it in Florence at the convergence of two interstates. Think about it. So so many of us would have had to drive through, for example, Carolina Forest yeah. to get there, right? And I, we you, all know you, you how that is. You can't stay saved as a Christian and drive through <laughs> Carolina Forest. You got to get you got a salvation again on the other side. Well, hey, I was going to say, my man, I I, I had to uh, talk to some folks that came to this thing. Man, there was a guy from New Jersey that came to it. And it'd probably take a whole episode to explain that whole thing. But there was a couple from Ohio uh, that intrigued me that I talked to. And it, they I asked them, do you know who J.D. Vance is? They don't know who J.D. Vance is. So some of this may be, I call it parrot head, uh, deadhead. People just want to go to a Trump rally. I said, we've never met a Trump rally before. They've always gone to drive. I'm sorry, but they don't know who J.D. Vance is. Um, I had a lady from Tennessee. I mean, she's an older lady. I mean, she's always go to the Trump rally. The thing you have to read into this is that are these people truly understanding of what's going on? Because I asked some of me, do you know who? uh, Well, they would ask me, why is Trump here? I said, well, basically, he's here to about Tom Rice. They don't know what Tom Rice is. So you sort of have to break that down into why it, it, the celebrity versus the candidate. And I think you've always tried to do this, Ken. Uh, I'll give you great honor on that. I mean, what are they voting for Trump, the celebrity, or they vote for America First Movement? Mm-hmm. And I'll leave you at that, my man. Thank you, David. And that's what Kahaley and I talked a lot about in that room. Uh, Robert was one of the um, – there's 75 people in a room. I know 60 of the 75. Of the 60, I know 30 probably don't like me. I don't like them either. That's just the nature of politics. But Robert and I talked a lot about, you know, the, the movement and the the devotion to one man. Um, Robert's proud of the preeminent pollster. Got a shout-out. 
I mean, Trump actually gave a shout out to Robert Kaley in the room of 75 people. Um, but but Robert, Robert doesn't know what the numbers are. When you talk about the 40 to 60, if 40% of these people who are voting for Republicans, um, whether they vote for Rice or, or you know, or, or Russell Fry, they're still a Republican, right? I mean, I mean, Tom Rice is a Republican member of Congress. He may not be an America firster. Russell Fry may not be an America firster. I don't know. Uh, Russell Fry has been endorsed by Donald Trump, who created, or did he create or find? I mean, that, that, that's kind of an interesting question. Did Trump find this movement or did this movement find him? You know, we, we've debated that in political circles. Nobody really knows the answer to that. Did, he, did Trump get back on his plane one day in Ohio and say, damn, I mean, these people are mad. These people are frustrated. The, the, and, and the people I'm talking about, and this goes to America first, and this is what I argue. I mean, I've always argued that if, it, if this movement is about a total devotion to one single man, it's not sustainable. I mean, it's a hell of a ride, and it's a lot of fun, and it'll be, it'll be, it'll be ruckusy while we're doing it. And we'll get everybody's attention, and we'll turn the political head or the political world on its head. But it's not sustainable. But if this movement is a little more intellectual, a, a little more committed, a little more diverse, and a little more believing in the points I've tried to make today about, you know, globalism and nationalism and uh, interventionism and non-interventionism, uh, you got to know who J.D. Vance is. I don't care if you vote for J.D. or not. If you believe in the movement, you got to know who J.D. Vance is. Is the number or the Republican rank and file voter? We know they're divided on Trump. Some love Trump. Some don't care much for Trump. Some want Trump to run again. Some don't want Trump to run again. But in the America First movement, it's 90% for Trump. But to David's point, is it 90% because of a devotion to one single man? Or is it a 90% number because he's resonated with these people who have been victimized by globalism, by interventionism, by a world that they have no control over. How many people in that parking lot last night had ever heard the line or phrase, the balance sheet with Federal Reserve? 1%? I mean, that's probably 1%, maybe less than that, Rev, maybe one half of 1%, that if you walked up to everybody in that lot last night or, or Saturday afternoon and Saturday night and said, hey, do you know about the, the, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve and what it's doing to prop up some of the assets or asset appreciation on Wall Street? No, but Trump's my guy. Why is Trump your guy? Maybe that's a better way to categorize this. Everybody in that field, Trump's their guy. Why is Trump your guy? That, that would probably be the most interesting second question after you find out um, these devotees and their, their connection with this political anomaly. Let's go to the phone. Here's Tim in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, Tim. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning. Uh, and I, I got to say, I, I was in one of the original members of the Buchanan Brigade almost 30 years. Well, it was 30 years ago when, when Pat Buchanan challenged George Bush uh, for the Republican nomination. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was up in New Hampshire with Pat when, uh, when he really saw some of the the devastation that the free trade and globalist uh, policies had created, and that was before NAFTA. Uh, in fact, that was during the debate over NAFTA. And uh, so it, I think um, 
uh, you know, Trump may have sold the message better than Pat did. Uh, you know, and and I, I also think that um, uh, Trump kind of underplayed the the social and religious aspect of um, of the of the fight from from that side. Uh, you know, that that Pat really emphasized. But even there, Pat was right about that. Uh, Pat said that we were in a culture war in 1992, and uh, and and he also called it a religious war, and, and and we see that he was right, and, and I think that um, uh, that that you are correct that uh, when when you say that if it's just about a man, it's not sustainable, and and I think that really, I know for myself and and many of the others who supported Pat, uh, it. it Without Pat, there really wasn't a movement. There wasn't anybody else who was who was pushing and promoting the America First until Donald Trump came along. And so, uh, um, but if I'm going to support Trump again, he has got to, absolutely has to, stick to 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 his guns and stick to his word. And he can't keep putting people like like Attorney General Barr and and. Nikki Haley and, and other uh, of those that that DC mindset that you know uh, go along to get along, uh, you know, and and he he really has to go outside of the box and he's got to find real America first people and and what the the Democrats and what the the media think of him be damned, uh, it, it's it's either America first or it's not. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate that. You know, uh, I, I've read so much on Buchanan. Buchanan beat Bush in, in New Hampshire, and but Buchanan was not an electric personality. He was not larger than life like Trump is. A little bit of this was Ross Perot. I mean, Perot talked a lot about the, the 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 economy or the economic realities of globalism. Remember what Perot said: um, that sucking sound you hear will be all the jobs as they leave town. Now, now Trump had the luxury of people being unbelievably frustrated. When Buchanan ran against Bush, there was not the frustration in the political world. I mean, people didn't trust the political parties, but they didn't feel like they had um, outsourced their way of life. I mean, we hadn't begun. Well, we kind of begun, but we hadn't, nobody had realized. There, there's a better way of saying it. We had we'd begun the deindustrialization and the hollowing out of the middle class, but Buchanan couldn't articulate that with job numbers and and trade with China and deficits and and a lot of these other things um, that I think Trump was able to articulate. Um, you know, immigration. I mean, when you look right down to me, I mean, somebody asked me America first in three words: immigration, trade, and China. And and, tra- and there's a lot of overlap there. I mean, you know, there's it's like the Venn diagram. You know, there's overlap here and overlap there and overlap. Well, I mean, to me, the, the America first movement. That there's a paragraph on immigration. Well, no, there's a hundred paragraphs on immigration. There's a hundred paragraphs on trade. There's a hundred paragraphs on China. But it's a three-legged stool. I think that's where the movement um, sustains itself. And 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 Trump's got to wow. I mean, I can't believe I'm gonna say this. Trump's got to demonstrate some humility and selflessness. And he just ain't the kind of guy <laughs> to demonstrate much humility nor selflessness because there has to be a secession plan. There has to be a handoff at some point in time, whether it's now, whether it's 24, whether it's 28. There has to be a handoff of the baton to a Ron DeSantis, to a J.D. Vance, to another generation of America Firsters. Take a break. Back in a minute. 
843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. You're on. What's up, fellas? Uh, so, Kim, basically what you're saying is about 80% of the people in that room with you were our enemy, to be honest with you. They, they, yeah. Well, I mean, they, they would not say if, if they had another Republican to support, they'd support him other than Trump. But they're, they're our enemy. Okay, so then we go on to um, what's going on now. And I'm sitting there looking at coincidences, which I don't believe in. You know, and, and Tucker said something about it the other night. And I've, I've been studying it and studying it. I mean, how coincidental is it that the minute they start losing control over their manufactured crisis of COVID, which made no mistake about it. Everything they did was designed for this outcome. Everything. The shutdown, the mass, the whole nine yards were designed for this outcome. So they lose the power because they give themselves extra emergency powers to fight a crisis they created. So then they create the Ukraine crisis. They start pushing for war, pushing for this. What if everything that Joe Biden and them have done, we're all excited because Joe Biden quit buying oil from Russia. We're all excited that Joe Biden never destroyed these billionaires. They destroyed the Russian economy. But there again, now gas prices are high. What does Russia sell? They sell gas. They may not be selling it to us, but the rest of the world is buying it. So how are we really hurting Putin? Now, we may not even hurt those billionaires. There still may be a billionaire, but all of the people in Russia are being hurt. Now, what if all of these things that he has been doing are done intentionally to, to get the exact wrong outcome. What if everything we're doing is wrong concerning Russia and the Ukraine? What if we're doing it on purpose wrong? What if we lose, what if American dollars are no longer, you know, petrodollars are done in American dollars, right, kid? Mm-hmm. What if they start doing it in crypto or even Chinese or whatever? What if they quit using American dollars? What if America stands us being the number one currency? What happens when you destroy the, the Russian economy? You haven't done nothing to the Chinese economy. But what about the rest of the economies are destroyed? Our economy is destroyed. They've destroyed our economy right along with the Russian economy. What did that accomplish? They're destroying all of Western Europe's economy right along with the Western economy, which maybe will attack the, the which may hurt the Chinese economy. What is the what is the goal of accomplish? What are they trying to accomplish when they destroy everybody's economy? You know, you see where I'm going. I mean, this gets really, really complicated. But I mean, again, they manufacture a crisis, then they give them more themselves more power to just to, to, to go fix the crisis they manufacture, and then they manufacture another crisis is even worse. What's going on right now is even worse than the manufactured COVID crisis. They manufactured the daggone race rides with BLM and, and, and Antifa, whatever the hell kind of rides you want to call them, where they're burning down the country. That was manufactured. And they did everything wrong to stop it. They manufactured COVID. They did everything wrong to stop it. This whole Ukrainian thing is manufactured. Yeah, Putin did, Putin did invade. But how we about went into World War Three over Muslims in Cuba, if you recall. So I mean, all of this stuff, you're telling me in twenty twenty two that people couldn't sit down and find a solution if they wanted to. I'm telling you there's something that really, really stinks here. And when inflation gets to the point 
Yeah, it was, it was probably killing the guys making fifty grand a year, thirty grand a year. I don't know how the hell they're going to survive with the prices of gas, prices of groceries, and everything else. How they're going to pay their bills? But what else when it starts affecting the people like to make it a quarter of a million dollars a year? There aren't a lot of them. But how about the people that are making three? What else when it starts affecting them? Right now, if you make two hundred fifty grand a year. You're being affected. Your lifestyle is being affected right now by the prices of everything. So what are, what are they trying to accomplish if it isn't bad? Because nothing that's happening is good, and nothing that is happening is happening by accident, and it's not incompetence on Joe Biden's part. They know exactly what they're doing. Just leave it there. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. I'll follow up, as we always do, on the other side. Back in a minute. 843 while the Hayseeds, Hillbillies, Rednecks, and Rabble Rousers were alive and well doing business at the airport here in Florence. I mean, you can imagine the criminals, the crimes committed, uh, the the unsafetiness around that event. I mean, right. isn't that kind of historically what we've heard? I mean, isn't that the narrative of the media narrative is, you know, these Depending troublemakers and, and Rabble Rousers, they come to town and they tear everything to smithereens and they break laws and they're bunch of criminals and once again hayseeds and hillbillies mm-hmm. um while they were peacefully organizing in an airfield in florence across town at the mall um in usual weekend fashion florence had a crime spree had a um a, a, some sort of gang related violence or fight or i don't think there were any guns involved or i don't think there was but um it seems that's just a recurring theme uh, every weekend there's some sort of report of a violent crime in our neighborhood, in our neck of the woods. Um, you had about ten or 12,000 people gathered in an airfield um, celebrating uh, uh, one of the most rambunctious political figures in American history. Um, I don't know of a single arrest. Maybe I missed something. Maybe somebody in law enforcement can call in and say, no, we arrested this many and that many or this many for that. Or, But while we were um, given fair warning to be careful around these hayseeds and hillbillies and lawbreakers, who support Donald Trump, once again, law-abiding, peaceful people would never support <laughs> Donald Trump uh, across town. As it happens every weekend, there's some sort of um, of gang-related violence or you know, there's a shooting or a stabbing or or a fight. Um, I mean, th- this is just, this has got to stop. I mean, somebody at the city has to address this as a reality. We have a crime problem First, in this First, we have to town. admit it, right? Well, I mean, Let's let's do this. But I think you'll agree with me. Representative Lowe came on um, Friday, and the one thing he's done that I give great credit to Representative Lowe is admitting that whatever it was we were doing, I don't care whose fault it is, doesn't matter about placing the blame, but we were not growing as an economy. So what we were doing was not working. Let's change. Let's address that shortcoming in some way, shape, or form. And I think it takes a lot of courage for a a political person to say, look, we've got to address this. I mean, we're not growing as an economy. I'm willing to take the charge um, and, and you know, change the way we're doing things. Somebody at the city has to admit that there's a crime problem and it has to be addressed in some way, shape, or form because up until now, I've not heard many voices at the city admit that we've got a crime problem. Um, and I was just thinking the irony of that. You know, that there's 12,000 people, some from here, some not from here. And we've been given fair warning about Trump events. I mean, they're violent mm-hmm. people. They, you know, they're, 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 they're vagrants. I'll tell you what I experienced walking out from the event uh, with the crowd. Now, we were all 
you know, frozen solid, but I felt a sense of community. I mean, everybody was talking. They had a good time. They enjoyed the speech. And as we made our way, you know, a mile and a half to the to the car, there were still, I mean, it, everybody felt good, even though, you know, you're in pain from the cold and haven't stood there for so long. So to get in the car and then see the news of what was happening uh, at the mall and the fight and the chaos, it's like, it was like the tale of two worlds. It is. It is. And, and, you know, one does not admit it has a problem. The other's blame for all the problems. You know, it's the Trump crowd. The Trump crowd is the one that causes all these problems and issues. And, and uh, uh, you know, it's just it's, it's unfair. It's, it's just not true. I mean, it's simply not the truth. Um, the one thing my daughter said, and I, th- I think a lot, she's 19. She wanted to go. I mean, she just wanted to go and experience that. So we go there. And, and we're walking through the crowd as you were, and we're walking to that airplane hangar, and she says, um, hey, Dad, does he have any idea what he's created? I mean, it was obvious to her. I mean, that there's a that there's an energy around it. There's a, I mean, it, I, I've been to a lot of NASCAR races, been a lot of tailgates, been a lot of, not a lot of carnivals and fairs, but some, and, and it has all three of those. I mean, there, there's a flavor there. There's a, um, you're right, Rev, there's a positivity there. Somebody actually came up to my daughter and fist bumped. Because she's younger than the normal attendee. And they were like, hey, the, the, you know, glad to have you. Something to that effect. And I told her, she said, why do they do it to me, not you? She said, because I'm old. I'm old and wild. <laughs> You're the usual yeah, suspect. I, I'm the usual suspect. <laughs> I'm, um, there, there's a million of me here. There aren't very many of you here. And they're probably celebrating the fact that there are. Uh, you are here. And they need more of you here. You know, it, it's hard for me to give parental advice to my daughter about the Trump movement. Because I don't want her falling for one man. I mean, I, I just don't. I mean, I think the, the devotion that a lot of these people have to one man is, is dangerous. I mean, Rev, I think you'll agree with that. Um, yeah, of course. But because it has to be bigger than than one man. Um, it, it has to be deeper than one man. It has to be. But, but uh, I get the loyalty because he was the one that, that spoke to these people's frustration, uh, myself included. And so, you know, I, I feel a, a, a loyalty and an appreciation for what he did, and, and he deserves, and again, this is me speaking, my opinion, he deserves my support. That's why I showed up on Saturday. I mean, a very small part. He didn't know I was there, you know, but I was one in the crowd, and I just felt like that was kind of my duty. Does it thanks. inspire you, Rev? I mean, when, when you're, I mean, not Trump. I'm talking about the, the movement. I mean, when you're around all these people who find him so, ah, uh, but he's their warrior. I don't think he's their hero. I don't think he's their savior, but they perceive him to be their warrior. Um, nobody understands their plot. Nobody understands, um, you know, their dispositions. Nobody understands, you know, where they walk or the road they travel. And along comes a guy that, that they, I don't know how they find him relatable. I mean, I, for the life of me, I don't think there's anything relatable about Trump. I mean, he grew up very privileged. I mean, he went to private school, went to UPenn, went to Dar. I mean, Wharton. Um, I mean, he's, he's a very privileged man. Um, but but he's done something in that universe, and and he's become very relatable in some way, shape, or form. Now, uh, David said he didn't wear a or he wore a baseball cap, and uh, I noticed he didn't have a towel when he spoke outside. No, but he didn't have a baseball cap, and he had a towel when he spoke inside the uh, the airplane hangar. Spoke briefly. Spoke for probably ten or twelve minutes, and. Um, and he talked about the, the the great people of South Carolina. I mean, they, for for ten of the fifteen or twenty minutes, he talked about you know the great people of South Carolina, how kind they'd been to him, how gracious they'd been to him, how supportive they'd been uh, to him. Um, talked a little bit about Lindsey Graham. 
and and, he, and it, Trump's Trump plays everything <laughs> off something else. So he says, you know, Lindsay, and then half the room boos and half this. No, Lindsay's good. Lindsay's good. You know, Lindsay needs to be straightened out every now and then. But yeah, you know, just typical um, Trump fashion. Uh, somebody on the phone? Yes, sir. Let's go there. Rujan in the PD. Hey, Rujan. Good morning, guys. Uh, hey, listen. I, I hope I hope everything works out in the in the uh, the PC world, which is post Cato world. So, <laughs> but we we gonna we gonna we gonna be fine. We gonna be fine. Hey, listen. I went by by the by the airport on Friday, probably around twelve twelve thirty. And I saw a bunch of folks out there, and I decided, well, I'm just going to go and stop and see who these people are and, you know, where they're from. And, listen, those folks were from Pennsylvania. They were from Alabama. They were from Georgia. They were from Kentucky. I mean, and these were these were diehard people. And even though, you know, you, a lot of them were talking about Trump, they were more, uh, you know, conversing about, you know, the taxes are too high and, and the issues and not so much the man, which I found – very, very interesting and very, you know, I, I'm enthusiastic about it because if something happens and he goes by the wayside, Trump that is, um, everything will be fine because people are waking up. And I've said it, you know, the middle class, quote unquote, non-melanated people have woken, have have awakened, and now they are on the move. And they're not, there's no way to put that, quote unquote, genie back in the bottle. It's just not going there. And as far as the, the um, as far as the, the crime thing, can you know, when you got a city council, and particularly, you know, the way and the makeup it is, and then you've got those folks that are influencing that city council, you know, in the way and the makeup there is, you know, that it is. They're not going to say anything because, you know, to say something is to be a racist, and that's all there is to it. And that, I see it in Darlington County. I see it in Darlington City. I see it in Florence City. I see it in Florence County. And, and like I said, you know, even like, like the Save America movement, Save Florence, Save Darlington movement has got to jump on board and start doing something about, and you know, what's going on with the crime and be proactive and not reactive. Good Thank morning, you. gentlemen. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate that. You know, let's go to this sentence that I wrote down on my on my sheet yesterday. I tell you, I spent a good bit of time with Kahaley over the weekend, Saturday in particular. We talked a little bit yesterday. Um, the, the personal devotion to the man. What percentage of, of, of America firsters are America firsters because they have a personal devotion to the man? Um, Rev, can you have, can you initially be an America firster because of a personal devotion to the man? Realize how shallow that is. And that evolves into this, you know, understanding, better understanding the movement. David said it, David said it this morning. A lot of these people in his hotel did not know of J.D. Vance. Well, to me, if you're an America firster, it has to, it's required that you know who J.D. Vance is. I mean, J.D. is the, not the Trump endorsed candidate, but the, I mean, I would argue he's the most America first candidate. The one thing that J.D. Vance does that very few Amer America firsters do, he's lived the life of the America firster. I mean, I was thinking about this in the room of 75 people in the airplane hangar. How many people in that room have honestly lived the life of uh, an understanding, an awareness of the America firster? Very few. I mean, very, very, very few people in that room. Once again, I was told by a friendly that somebody in that room had given Save America $5 million. That didn't disqualify you from understanding the plot of the working class of the forgotten man but but it that puts you a little bit removed from that from that reality. So when you've got these competing interests, and we've been very redundant this morning, but it, I mean it's just kind of an interesting show after the weekend. The former president 
who leads this movement, was in our town on behalf of congressional candidates that he's endorsed. I think it's so interesting that he was talked out of being critical of Nikki Haley because that would have been the takeaway. You know, Trump being critical of Nikki Haley would have taken precedent over Trump comes and endorses two congressional um, candidates. That shows me that he'll listen. If somebody can say, hey, Donald, um, don't do this and here's why. He goes, or, or maybe he goes, I don't know what he goes, but it maybe he goes, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. You're right. I mean, if we come down here and criticize Nikki Haley in her, in her home state, that'll be the storyline, and it won't be about Russell Fry and Katie Arrington, you know, garnering the support of um, hopefully me and this, and this movement will follow. And I don't have any idea how many of you out there, I mean, you, you know this and you alone. How many of you out there vote for a candidate simply because Trump asked you to? I mean, there, there's a difference in, in, I mean, we know the loyalty Trump has. There, there are degrees of loyalty. You ready? There's a degree that you have to Trump, right? I mean, that, that is this, um, that is this um, devotion to the man. And Rev said it, you know, that there, there are a lot of different reasons why you're devoted. You may be devoted because you feel like he kickstarted something that can sustain itself. You may be devoted because he, I don't know, you like the way he talks to a you know, little rocket man. Or, I mean, there are a lot of crazy things he said during the, his time of running for office and the time he held office. So, so there, there's a, a devotion to the man. There's, a, there, there's kind of a next level of, you know, Trump asks you, the voter, to vote for Russell Fry via the endorsement. He asked you, the voter, to vote for Katie Arrington. And the other, the, 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 the less influential part of this, I think, is when a candidate says that I'm an America firster. So you've got I'm an America firster, You've got, um, I'm an America firster and Trump approves of it. And then you've got Trump himself. So I think there are levels of support here. Um, and devotion. But, but then you look at the message and it, this is where I think it gets so interesting. Um, what is the message of America first? I mean, we know that there are, are a variety of reasons. We know there are a variety of explanations. There are a variety of, um, of motivations. Um, is the, is the, is the most important line of the saying globalism or not is the most important line of the saying free trade or not for me. I mean, I can only articulate my personal reasons for being an America firster. I think the, the political class have gotten it wrong on trade. I think the political class have gotten it wrong on immigration. And I think the political class has gotten it wrong on China. And I think they're, and I'll be breeze here for a second. I think they know they're wrong on trade, but they don't care. Well, when I talk about, you know, is it worth closing three plants that employ half the town to save a dollar on a golf shirt or a, a brake pad, and the next thing you know, everybody under the age of 60 are hooked on opiates or meth? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think that bothers half that 75 pe- half of the 75 people in that, in that airplane hangar. That that's not, I mean, that don't touch them, right? I mean, they don't work at the plant. They're not worried about the price of a golf shirt or a brake pad. I mean, these are, I would imagine, hyper-capitalists who've done extremely well in the business world. Um, so, so when you look at the Republican Party and its stance on China, its stance on immigration, its stance on trade, I think it forced the hand of the rank-and-file Republican primary voter. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Kind of a um, a different Monday this morning. Time change. Cato's not here. Had a big rally in town 
um, this weekend, and I eulogized my father-in-law at 11 o'clock Saturday morning. So I had a complicated uh, day Friday. Let's go to the yeah, phone. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Uh, we have Councilman William Schofield's on the line with us. Hey, William, how you doing? Good morning, guys. How are you? Good morning, sir. How are you? Another fun day in paradise. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to call in when uh, you said you haven't had anybody from the city say that we've had a, uh, a crime problem here in Florence. We have a crime problem in the city of Florence. We have a crime problem here in Florence County. And I truly believe it actually stems at the home. You know, we, we, we as a people have gotten lost from where we grew up. Again, I'm sure as you, you as well as I, when we grew up, we had neighbors that they, they acted as fathers. They acted as second mothers to us. And when we did good, they praised us. And when we did bad, they scolded us. And they looked after each other like a family. And when we get back to that family mindset, I think we'll be, be in a better place because we just have a lot of absent fathers and absent mothers in some of these children's lives, and, and they're growing up uh, just doing whatever they want. So we've got to get back being active in the children's and youth's lives in order to be able to begin to change that mindset. Then on a totally different scale, you know, we've got our law enforcement. You know, to, to attract and retain our law enforcement, we have to pay them adequately, and we don't. There's thousands of dollars of gap in between the city and the sheriff's office in pay. That's unacceptable. We want to be able to compete with outside agencies in different counties. We have to pay our law enforcement adequately to be able to attract and retain them. William, is that something that you're working on? I mean, what, if we're, if we're underpaying, I mean, if you, if you argue that we're underpaying law enforcement to get the, um, to get the best and brightest, is that something the council seems to be interested in trying to to um, to make right or make better? I, I believe there is, uh, and I believe there's a, a whole movement to push for that. I mean, we've got to do better by the guys that actually lay their lives down for us every single day and put themselves in harm's way. So, uh, yes. The, the follow-up to that, and I don't know if you can answer this, but I know you'll give your opinion because I know you well enough. Um you don't run the justice system. I don't run the justice system. But I hear a lot of complaining from law enforcement about the um, the lack of consistency in the justice system. The fact that these are these are the same people committing the same kind of crimes over and over and over again. As a member of city council and a candidate for county council, how can you encourage the the the, the people who can? change the way we sentence and change the way we we set bond how, how can you argue for for more severe punishment higher bonds or bails to keep the citizenry safe i think it all starts with everyone we elect i mean because we're the ones that basically put our judges in place i mean if we don't have uh good elected officials in place selecting the the appropriate judges uh we're going to end up right where we are um so you know, there's there's portions that the city council, the county council, and state officials can all do in putting these uh, officials in place, but uh, we've got to hold those judges accountable as well. But you believe, I mean, you, you go on the record, you think that there is an inordinate amount of crime in the city of Florence and the county of Florence as well, and, and you think other political leadership is beginning to become more aware of that? 100% correct. Okay. Well, that's encouraging that you would call in. Thank you, William. Appreciate that. So there's one elected official willing to go on the record and says, yes, 
I mean, we do have a crime problem, and we need to address it. And then we, we need to address it sternly, aggressively, and quickly. And um, that's encouraging to me, that, that somebody would listen, call in, who's already holding office, seeking another office, um, admitting that we have a problem. Let's go to the phone. Our next caller is Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. You're on the air. Oh, hey. hey. Uh, good morning. Uh, I kind of miss Cato, but uh, that, uh, you all find somebody else to abuse, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, I, I, I just wanted to give an amen to what Breeze was saying because I think if we, we continue down this road, uh, those pe- the, the people in, in Washington and our representatives, unfortunately, I, I don't believe it's incompetence because a blind hog will find an acorn once in a while. But they, it's, uh, I, I think they're trying to crash this economy, and uh, that just gives them more emergency power. And Putin is determined to crash his own economy. And uh, if we go down and uh, Russia goes down, I think it will drag Europe down too. And that will leave uh, one man standing. That will be China. And I don't know if the percolation effect of all the unrest that will ensue, but uh, you haven't seen nothing yet if uh, you collapse uh, worldwide economies. I mean, you, it, it, it's a very dangerous situation that these people are putting us into. And for the life of me, I can't understand why in the world they do it because ultimately they're going to be at risk too. Well, I mean, the concern, thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. I mean, from what I'm reading and what I'm gathering, the concern China has is Putin has decided uh, because the the war has not gone as planned. I mean, I think, you know, may, maybe he believed this, maybe he didn't, maybe he tried to self-convince, but, but he thought he would go to Ukraine and they would welcome him as liberators. I mean, we've made that mistake before in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and some of these places, you know, democracy will be embraced and we'll be, we'll be liberators. And, you know, every, every Muslim on every street corner will say, you know, yay, here come the Americans. Didn't work um, like that. You know, I don't, I don't know what, what Putin's plan was except to expand into Ukraine. Did he want to take over all of Ukraine, uh, some of the Damas territories, some of the um, what he considered to be independent republics? How many Russians, how many Ukrainians want to be, um, you know, consumed or a part of Russia again? I don't know the answer to any of that. It's apparent that most Ukrainians don't want to be a part of it because they're fighting for their independence and, and freedoms and liberties, and that has caused great consternation with the Russian onslaught or the Russian attack. Um, but it looks to me like, from what I'm reading, that China is deeply concerned at how alienated Russia is becoming. And if their, you know, if their unholy alliance is predicated on uh, an unlimited connecting one to another, and I'm talking about Russia and China, energy and trade and all these other sorts of things, commerce, um, and Russia decides or Putin decides that, you know, there is no degree of isolation that he's not willing to go. I mean, whatever extreme measures he has to take to be successful in Ukraine. I mean, when you start bombing buildings and killing innocent people, the level of isolation becomes more intense. Even those that say, um, like Germany. I mean, Germany depends on Russia for a certain amount of its energy. A large share of its energy comes from there. And and I think when they're when they're battling on the battlefield, and you're you're you know a Ukrainian tank is blown up or a Ukrainian uh, battalion is blown up, that's one thing. But when an innocent mom holding her baby 
is blown to smithereens, that's another thing. And the world begins to isolate you when the visions and optics of that become more and more frequent. And I think she is scared to death of China becoming that connected to Russia, hence that isolated from the Western world. Can Putin survive without the Western world? Uh, the Russian people probably can't, but he can. Can Xi survive without the uh, the Western world? Uh, to some degree, he probably can, because he's a um, I mean, he's a communist dictator. Both are communist dictators, so they'll be fine. I mean, no matter what the outcome of the Russian people or the Chinese people are, but I think China China's status as a geopolitical superpower is more predicated predicated on its economic viability. And I think when you begin to isolate yourself economically, you have serious, serious problems. Nobody considers Russia a superpower because of their economic prowess. I mean, it's military, you know, more nuclear armaments, uh, more tanks, more weaponry, a stronger, bigger, badder army. That's why China has to be, excuse me, that's why Russia has to be seriously considered. But but when you take the, let, let's say, Rev, the, the, the Russian army, combine it with the the Chinese economy or the Chinese manufacturing, that 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 you know that becomes a a dangerous combination for the Western world. Except if Putin decides that there's no level of isolation he's not willing to go to, or no extreme degree of isolation that he's not willing to risk, as long as he obtains Ukraine, as long as he hostility uh, his his hostile takeover of Ukraine is successful, and I think the um the hostility he's demonstrated in Ukraine has isolated him further and further. There are either there are even something I Switzerland, Sweden, you know, these countries dumb I mean, they they just don't get mad at anybody. I mean they they just kind of do their Historically thing. Historically neutral. I mean, very neutral. I mean the old joke, the Swiss bobsled team. You know who's pulling for the Swiss bobsled team? Nobody. Who's pulling against the Swiss bobsled team? Nobody. And that's where Putin finds himself and I think she is um is desperately nervous as a result of the lack of progress in Ukraine and what he's having to do. I mean, it's, it's almost like terrorism. I mean, if you're, if you're in an apartment building with your wife and family, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a chance a bomb comes through your window. And I'm talking about not a misfire, not a scud missile. I'm talking about intentional. I mean, that, that's terrorism. When you strike fear in the nation of civilians to get across a political point or, or victory, I mean, that in essence is, is terrorism. Uh, talking about Washington and what Washington does and what it doesn't do. I was reading over the weekend that we, the taxpayer, we, the American taxpayer, um, as a result of some of the, um, some of the loan guarantees for Russian purchases of American aviation, um, the, the, the Russian government owes the XM bank, which is funded by the American taxpayer, $428.8 million. Uh, we, you know, you, the American taxpayer, me, the American taxpayer, we have financed Russian purchases of American aviation equipment, talking about planes, probably one Putin flies in. Um, and, and we argue this is for, you know, exporting and importing goods in America. Um, the, it became publicly known and a spokesperson for the XM bank, the export import bank says that I quote, we are working expeditiously to resolve those repayments to the U.S. taxpayer. So while we are equipping the Ukrainians to fight the Russians, the American taxpayer may or may not 
have funded some of the uh, some of the flying, you know, so, some of the fighter <laughs> jets that were bought by American wow. manufacturing. I mean, th- th- there's your government at work. I mean, if you want to know why there were 10,000 people in a field in Florence, South Carolina, Saturday night, th- there's a pretty good reason. I mean, they don't understand, nor do I, the Axiom Bank and, and, and the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. But they understand the government has created a world in which there are winners and losers, and very few in that field of those ten to 15,000 people consider themselves to be winners when the government does. Now, the 75 people in the, in the, uh, in the hangar, a totally different animal. The only reason they were there is they believe Trump Steele is someone that you're going to have to deal with at some point in time. If they thought Trump had run out of political capital and he was not an effective candidate, effective campaigner, had a chance to win a political office, that airplane hangar would have had 10 people instead of 75. But the 75 people in there, 60 are playing their hands. They're hedging their bets. They don't believe in America first any more than a man on the moon. But they got to play the game. The people in that field, I mean, the, the, those, that's his army. I mean, the, those are the stalwarts. The, those, are the, um, those are what will sustain this political movement if indeed this political movement is to be sustained. And, and also, the people in the building and the people on the field, oh, you know, the Russians owe you $428.8 million um, because the XM Bank loaned that money. Guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. Of course. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Councilman Brian Braddock is joining us on the line now. Morning, Brian. Hey, good morning, guys. How are y'all today? Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Wanted to uh, give a call in. I heard uh, Councilman Schofield and heard the concern about the crime in Florence. And uh, first of all, I agree. You know, you, you got to admit there's a problem. And I certainly agree that we have a crime problem in Florence and the PT. And, um, you know, I've, in the 14 months that I've been on city council, I've been to two forums about violence. Um, the first one had T.J. Joy, Chief Heidler, Captain Mack, um, Councilman Chaquez McCall, myself, Councilwoman Lithonia Barnes, and about 40 people in attendance. And then I went to another one just recently, a couple of weeks ago, that Councilman McCall, uh, Councilman Al Bradley, and uh, Councilwoman Lithonia Barnes put together. And uh, there was probably about 100 people there. And, um, you know, the, the first thing is, we just we simply can't do it alone, and I think that as a community, um, one thing I'd like to see is there's a, a a lot of displaced police officers from up up north, Oregon, Seattle, and I'd like to see the community get together and offer discounts, you know, to their stores, um, to their services, um, real estate commissions, maybe drop a percentage, a billboard campaign, welcome them welcoming you know uh, police officers into our community and just a general consensus that we we love we support and we need good officers we're, we're down i think around 40 30 to 40 officers right now and um and we ask so much of them but we give so little back ron why are we down that many officers if we're down 30 officers i mean what has happened over a period of time i mean obviously you've not been there long enough um to, 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 be, to be the reason that's the case, 
but but over the years why have we gotten to a place where we're down that many officers well right now there's a couple of factors one is um, we had several officers um, who have retired out and we're not replacing them uh, due to covid um, the training at, at sled in columbia um, the whole uh, training schedule was put off and so now it, it takes about a year um, one thing is process to hire a new officer it's going to take them about a year to go through the whole process, the vetting process, the waiting for training process, the, the getting them in the field process. So, you know, you lose, you lose four officers and it's going to take you a year, you know, to, uh, to replace them. And then, and then you got competition in, in the, uh, in the police officer um, field, you know, you go to the beach, they just had a hiring event. They're paying $5,000 sign-on bonuses. They're paying $5,000 more a year, and, and they're on the coast. You know, so it's very, very competitive, not to mention the natural, the, the na- national culture towards policing is, is just is so bad and truly just demoralizing, you know. that So if you're an 18, 19, 20-year-old, you know, and, and you're thinking about being a police officer and serving your community, and, um, and you see – you know, people on TV getting yelled at, spit on, you know, someone shooting on the bird, cussing them out, and they just got to stand there and take it. You know, that's not something that as an 18, 19, 20-year-old that um, I'd, I'd be raising my hand and say, yeah, that's for me. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you this, and, and I, nobody wants to live in a crime-ridden community. I don't think Democrats do. I don't think Republicans. I don't think whites. I don't think black. I don't think Hispanic, women or men, no matter what religion you may be. Nobody wants to live in a crime-ridden community or crime uh, a community with a crime problem, but doing something about it's a different animal. I mean, it's easy to stand on the street corner or your soapbox and say, you know, I'm tired of the crime. we got to do something about the crime. Um, d- do you believe there's a consensus amongst counsel? We've heard from Council Schofield and you, and I applaud you for doing this, accepting responsibility that we have a problem. Now let's address it in some meaningful fashion. But but is the willingness amongst city and county council, you city in your, in your case, to aggressively pursue solution-based governance? So I can't speak for the county, but I will say for the city, there is a consensus. Uh, I feel like the Democrats on council, you know, are going about it a different way, and I think it's a proactive way. They have um, they have uh, created Latonia Peaches Barnes, uh, created a community development committee um, with, and you got councilwoman Pat Gibson Highmore and Councilman Chiquez McCall on this committee, and their goal is to tear down, demolish abandoned homes, and then to incentivize and encourage the building of new homes. I think that that goes a long way in these communities to to change what people are seeing every day. You know, if you live in an area where every third home is is abandoned, and that's where a girl got raped, or a guy got shot, or a junkie, you know, a crackhead sleeps at night, you know, that doesn't do a lot to encourage you as an individual. So, um, and they get um. I'll be honest, they get beat over the head. If a Democrat says anything about more police, uh, they're not going to get reelected. And that's the national that's the national political scene having uh, having an effect on local politics is that they they have to go about it differently. I don't know a single council person on city council who is not for um, Chief Heidler and our police force. Captain Mack and those guys, you know, to do uh, to support them and help them to do the best job they can do. Um, but politically speaking, 
you know, we, me and council, uh, Councilman Scotesville, we could say, hey, we need some more tactical vehicles. We need some more um, cameras. We need some more training. And for a Democrat to say those things, um, they we get reelected and they they get put out of office. Yeah, and we have so to we- understand that. Have respect that, Brian. We got to take a break. Hard break. Top of the hour. Appreciate you calling in. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Hour number four on this Monday morning after time change, after the Trump rally, after the Gamecocks win two of three against top ranked Texas in oh, baseball. Yeah, yeah. After the announcement that. Pitchers and catchers will eventually report, and we'll play some baseball. Yeah, spring training is kind of officially underway. There you go. Let's go to the ball. Now, Braves fans are just waiting on one piece of the puzzle to come together. What is that? Resign Freddie. I'm a Braves fan, and I'm not waiting. You're not waiting? No. You don't care? I don't care. They got one world championship out of him. That's plenty. (laughs) Let's get another. Well, you're right. Let's go to the phone. Trish in Hartsville, thanks for holding. You're on. Well, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, certainly would have loved to have been out there at the rally on Saturday, but it was too cold for my bones. <laughs> but uh, certainly, uh, certainly, uh, you know, uh, reminiscing on the, on the good old days and uh, looking forward to bringing that back. But I just wanted to make a, a comment, and then you can answer, um, and, and I'll re- release the call. But you were talking about uh, China and Russia, and I think uh, another aspect is that, you know, China – I believe is really looking at how the United States is responding to Russia and, and Ukraine. And at this point, many would have thought that they would have sent in some air support, you know, to, or, or sent the planes to give them a, a better chance at, at, at uh, defending themselves against Russia. But also China is, you know, making moves on, on Taiwan. And, um, and they see that uh, the president that we have now is, is very weak. Um, not able, uh, you know, to to uh, make a decision uh, of how to defend, uh, help defend Ukraine. And I think that China's taking notes because if we don't come in and give the support to Ukraine, why would why would we go in to defend um, Taiwan? So I think he's really looking at how uh, Biden is handling things, and he sees that he's very weak. Um, and just not willing to stand up and do what's necessary. And then the other thing is that while the gas prices and everything that you mentioned earlier, you know, is it, draining, um, you know, the, the extra money that we have now that the restaurants and things are back open, now that money is going for gas, for higher prices, you know, in the other areas. So really it looks like it's a deliberate attempt to grab more power you know, in the in the next uh, you know year or two with this administration. So I'll listen offline uh, for your response. Thank, thank you, Trish. You. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate the call. I certainly understand uh, the weather being a deterrent uh, to those who may or may not have considered going. And just at the last moment said, "I don't know. It's too cold for me to be out." You're it, out there, yeah. And you said it was real, real, real cold. It took it pretty much took all day yesterday to recover from you know, stiff muscles and hurting hips for standing in the cold for that yeah. long well i mean you're getting old well and, and, uh, and older <laughs> people tend to hurt more in, in the cold weather <laughs> you know talk, talking about um and this is something i should be ashamed of because i would argue i'm a little more politically astute than this but but i've searched uh for a long time trying to understand trump's governing philosophy and it's right before our very eyes and maybe uh the ordeal in russia illustrated to me how clearly um it was right before my very eyes. Trump 
is a business person. A business person is always seeking leverage in a business deal. I mean, if someone has something to sell and there's a potential buyer, somebody has the leverage. Right now, people who are selling their homes have more leverage than people who are buying the home. we got a shortage of inventory. Construction costs are through the roof. Um, so if you're selling your house, odds are you're going to get a premium. Fair enough? I mean, you've got leverage in that negotiation. Now, now after the world blew up in 2008, guess who had all the leverage? The buyer. Business deals are predicated upon, um, now, now sometimes it's fair and balanced, but most time uh, one party has a competing interest with the other. If Rev has something he wants to sell to me, Rev wants to get all he can for whatever it is he's trying to sell, and I want to pay as little as I can. Now, every now and then, Rev and I agree, here's the point of equilibrium. Here's what's fair for you and fair for me. But in most of these um, negotiations, either I have more or less leverage. Trump looks at every ah, political issue as if it were a business deal. Do I have leverage or not? And here's the way the West has given up its leverage. The West has bought into this green energy plan, this utopian worldview that there will be no fossil fuels burned and there'll be visions of sugar plums dancing in everybody's head as windmills turn, solar panels light up homes, and electric cars get us from point A to point B. Huh? Okay. I mean, let's head down that road. Let's build as many electric cars as we can. And let's find out who will pay 60 or 65 or 80 or 85 or 90 or $95,000 a year for them. I mean, not, not a year, but for a purchasing price. Um, how much investment do we have to make in the electric grid to supply the electricity necessary to charge all these wonderful inventions and creations in the name of green and renewable energy? I'm not opposed to renewable energy. But if we give up fossil fuel produ producing energy or, or the production of fossil fuel, the production of energy via fossil fuel, we're giving up leverage. We've already given up all the leverage to China when it comes to manufacturing. Why can't we play hardball with China? Because we are a consumptive nation. They manufacture the things we consume. We don't have the ability any longer. And we can break down why, when, where, how. But, but we just don't manufacture widgets in America as we historically have. So when we go to China, negotiate some of these political issues, guess what? China has in their corner. For them to consume, we've got to manufacture. They have a lot of leverage. Now, there, there's no question there is leverage in being the consumer, right? I mean, we've got the money. That They've got to have buyers. If they're going to make widgets, they've got to sell those widgets. Uh, who's going to buy those widgets? The Western world, America in particular. But we don't have the ability to manufacture any longer. Therefore, we've given up leverage. Go to energy. Why can't we deal with Russia the way I think we should deal with Russia? Because the Western world depends on Russia for X percentage of its energy. Um, we don't here in the U.S. Did we um, we embargoed whatever it was we were buying from, uh, from the Russian uh, production, and I think 650,000 barrels a day, somewhere thereabouts. Um, that, that's, uh, I mean, it, it matters, but it's not a, a big amount. Germany gets 40% of its energy from Russia. Germ Germany can't cut Russia off. I mean, they can't turn the lights on after a week. They couldn't drive from point A to point B after three or four days. They've given up leverage. So, so Trump being a business guy says, we've got to get back some of the leverage. We, we've got to bring, we, we've got to place tariffs on China and create a free trade for free flow of trade. In other words, um, 
when we sell a car to China, he's talked about this a lot. He actually did this um, Saturday night. When we sell a car to China, they, they place a tariff. When, when a car is manufactured and, and sent away, we don't. Um, a lot of other durable goods are done that way. Um, I don't know how Russia and energy production, I don't know the tariffs or the, um, the taxes that go on some of the energy production, uh, how it flows one way and the other. But, but we've got to get back to a place of becoming independent, not just, not just energy, energy producing independence, but manufacturing independence. And when you look at the, at the alliance or the allegiance that, that Russia has with China, it should strike fear into most Americans. It should make us deeply concerned about our capacities and our dependencies. And, and I would argue right now that because of our um, energy production decline, and I don't care what Biden says. I mean, Biden says we're producing more energy than we ever has. His own, administrative, his own administration's website says we aren't. I mean, we're down about a half million barrels a day, maybe about 700,000 barrels a day in energy and oil production and um, that, you know, that's refined into, into petroleum. Um, we said last week, and I'll say it again, our planet is a petroleum-producing organism. Um, on this planet, there's something called a carbon cycle. We bought into um, this green energy plan that neglects to accept the reality that our planet is a petroleum-producing organism organism i read over the weekend um that the only data that are global reliable and transparent are the tropospheric satellite measurements that are maintained by the university of alabama in huntsville i have no idea why that's the case but since i started hosting this show i've always been referred to the university of alabama at huntsville no idea there, there's a um there's a professor down there Dr. Roy Spencer, he is one of the foremost um, experts, leading experts on uh, global warming, now climate change, it'll eventually be extreme weather. I mean, once once the planet stops warming up, it'll be called extreme weather. Once weather becomes less extreme, but anyway, they'll always find another rambling definition and random definition of... um, To fit their narrative. Well, to fit their narrative, no doubt about it. But the only data that is global reliable and transparent is the data this tropospheric satellite measuring and i've got a graph here that i couldn't begin to understand i mean it's blue lines it's red lines it's yellow lines it's orange lines but this satellite data goes back to about 1979 and that's when we really began tracking the tropospheric satellite measurements it uh, 42 years but that's not a short period of time i mean if you believe the earth is billions of years old obviously what is 42 years it's a gnat on an elephant's elephant rump, but it's still a period of time. So, so from 79, we, we have some recordings in this tropospheric satellite measuring. Um, guess what we found out over the 42-year period, 42 year period? The, the global average temperature has increased at a rate of 0.13 degree centigrade per decade. That means that it would take about 80 years for average temperature to raise one degree, one degree per 80 years. Um, and this is all speculation. This is all modeling. Um, it's, 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 it's evidence that shows 
um, to the point that in 2009, which is what, 13 years ago, um, one of these alarmist scientists said, his name's Kevin uh, Trenberth, he's one of these Al Gore disciples, John Kerry disciples, he's one, uh, I mean, he, he provides them a lot of the information, they fly around in uh, carbon-producing jets and, you know, warn about car- carbon emitting. Um, but he says, and I quote, you ready, Rev? Mm-hmm. The fact that we can't account for the lack of warming at the moment is a travesty that we can't. <laughs> what? Yeah. The fact is that we can't account for the lack of warming at the moment, and it is a travesty that we can't. But he's admitting that, you know, the warming trend has, has slowed down, rapidly slowed down to the point of uh, 0.13 degree per decade, which comes to one degree every 80 years, and we're going to recreate an economy. So when you see buildings blown up in Ukraine, and you say, what in the world does Roy Spencer at the University of Alabama in Huntsville have to do with a building getting blown up in Ukraine by unfriendly fire, by Russian missile? Russia has leverage when the West chooses to not produce oil. The West has an abundance of resources that it could extract, could convert into energy if it chooses to. But it's chosen to believe what people like these alarmists like Kevin Trenberth and Al Gore and John Kerry and Stephen Colbert and John Stewart and some of these others. Stewart's a little bit issue. I mean, Stewart's a little bit different. I mean, he's beginning to really say some things that infuriate the liberal left because he's a guy with a little bit of common sense. I mean, I don't think anybody's ever accused John Stewart of being an idiot. Bill Maher's not an idiot. I mean, they're liberals, but Stewart's a smart guy. Maher's a smart guy. Colbert might, might not be. I don't know. But these two other guys have presented themselves as liberals, but they're bright men. And they're beginning to say, wow, I mean, are we doing the right thing? If, I don't know if you saw this or not, but the Atlantic Magazine, which is kind of a um, – I mean, it's a liberal Bible. I mean, whatever the Atlantic says goes. So it'd be a little bit like if, if I were a, an Orthodox conservative, the National Review had an article, I'd put a lot of credence in that. I, I, would, I would, you know, I would repeat that I, at, a, at, a, at a tailgate somewhere. When somebody started talking politics, I would, I would argue that the National Review said this, therefore it's got to be of merit. The Atlantic magazine is similar to that on the political liberal left. And the Atlantic magazine is worried about what a nuclear war could do to the escalation or acceleration of climate change. I mean, forget the millions that would be vaporized and and one-tenth of one second. I I should act surprised, but But, I'm not. But it's the Atlantic magazine. And the Atlantic, once again, has this very liberal worldview that knows no bounds, knows no limits. And they are worried about what a nuclear war would do to the realities of climate change. Forget, once again, the millions of people who would be vaporized or the hundreds of thousands of people who would be vaporized in a nanosecond. They're more interested in what it would do to the climate of the planet Earth. So when we give up leverage, and this is the moral of this story, you ready? When we give up leverage in manufacturing, China becomes a more dominant force in geopolitics. When we give up leverage by not producing maximum energy in the Western world, we, we, we give that up to whom? Saudi Arabia. Guess how many people have already been beheaded in Saudi Arabia this year? 81. There you go. Remember what Putin, I mean, excuse me, remember what Biden did? 
He didn't want to deal with a ruthless dictator and expansionist like Putin. So he gives Saudi Arabia a call to see if they got time to sit down with him and barter on some oil. And they said, no, we're too busy cutting heads off. We'll be with you as soon as we get this 82nd person beheaded. the, The absurdity of the Western world and its inability to comprehend what we're up against. So, so some of these very contrarian forces, very difficult and, and complex realities. And we, we got to manufacture and we got to be energy productive. I mean, we, we must, we must be, and I'll tell you this, I mean, you know, I, I, I would hope that America first end game, I mean, if it has an end game, it is to prioritize not just America, but America first is America first. But, but the Western world has to latch on to, and we're normally the leader of the Western world. So when America first says, we've got to manufacture and we got to produce energy, the Western world must understand that there are some very unfriendlies out there that take advantage of us giving up leverage. Nobody took the leverage from us, Rev. We simply gave up the luxury of having that leverage. Mm-hmm. Back in a minute. Person that wrote this in the Atlantic Bay, I want to quote this, uh... Nuclear exchange likely between Russia and the United States would be worse for the climate than any energy policy that Donald Trump ever proposed. Get your shot in at Trump. I mean this quite literally. If you're worried about rapid catastrophic changes to the planet's climate, then you must be worried about nuclear war. That is because on top of killing tens of millions of people, even a relatively minor exchange of nuclear weaponry would wreck the planet's climate in enormous and long-lasting ways. Um, there. So when Vladimir Putin thinks about whether or not to um, fire off a nuclear warhead, he needs to think long and hard about what the Atlantic magazine say. I mean, you can't make this up. I mean, you really and truly can't. And it's and it's odd that they would include, well, it's not odd, it's the Atlantic magazine. And I find the Atlantic to be very talented people. I mean, seriously. I mean, some of the most, some of the best written articles I've ever read are by the writers at the Atlantic. I mean, I don't agree with much of it, but it's very provocative. It's somewhat interesting. Uh, what do we say here? You got to kind of keep up with what the other side is thinking and some of the most talented people. But when I read this, I was like, okay. And then they got the shot in at Donald Trump. You know, that, that really proves that they mm-hmm. are um, still on, on course <laughs> and, and it's all, you know, all hands on deck and all motion moving forward uh, because this could even be worse than any energy policy that Donald Trump ever, ever uh, proposed. And then he says, and I mean this quite literally. <laughs> and as an aside, again, uh, we'll just happen to mention the millions of people that would die in such yeah. a, such an event. So. Vaporized in, in a nanosecond. But mm-hmm. then we've got the um, the climate fallout to worry about. Let's go to the phone. So Jeff, there. It's Jeff in Florence. Hello, Jeff. Hey, good morning. How are you guys? Hey, Jeff. Hey, uh, well, I, I think it's cute that you, uh, you now have a problem with Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, when uh, when they were cutting heads off of uh, U.S. Uh, based reporters, um, that was no big deal. And the fact that Jared Kushner is actually um, keeping the relationship going with Saudi Arabia and grifting off of them. I don't hear you ever talk about that, but that, that's cute. Thank you. That's what I intended to be cute. And only yeah. only yeah. only when Saudi Arabians are getting their head caught off. With Democrat presidents, that's an absurd argument to make, um, but it is cute. So continue. Seriously, you, 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 you did you say anything? We talked a lot about Khashoggi when he when he's had his head cut off. We talked about the reporter for the Washington Post. Yeah, 
to Soji. Yeah, yeah, well, sure we did. We talked extensively about that. Okay. But the fact that Jared Kushner is now in a sovereign fund with them, you're okay with that? Uh, I, I, I treat it similar to Clinton Global Initiative, how much money they took from Saudi Arabia. I think what okay. Kushner's dirt in relation to Saudi Arabia pales at what a former president. So the son-in-law of an American president grifting of Saudi Arabia in no way, shape, or form rivals what a what a, a, a former Secretary of State senator and a former president do in relation to Saudi Arabia. Check in and see how much Saudi Arabia has contributed to the Clinton Global Initiative. Okay, and and and, and so so just just so you're okay, it's okay. Because the Clintons did it. No, so but, but, no, but, but, but apparently it's, it's not okay that Jared Kushner did it. Um, I've not heard you complain a lot about Saudi Arabia making it. contributions let's, let's, to the Clinton Global Initiative. The moral equivalency is always the argument you make, Jeff. It's always the argument you make. It's whataboutism. Whataboutism is the problem. Well, I mean, you're okay with it then, but you're not okay with it now. Are you trying to argue that I'm okay with a reporter from the Washington Post getting dismembered? Well, I mean, like it was, there was no big stink, and the 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 Trump administration just brushed it under the table. I don't remember the Trump administration brushing that under the table at all. I think we were all repulsed what, what by that. What sanctions did we put on? What what sanctions did we stop buying oil from Saudi Arabia? I don't uh, understand what the point is. I mean, continue. I'm sorry. I'm gonna. I mean, continue. I, that's, yeah, I interrupted we, your train of thought. I'm sorry. No, no problem. But there was there was no sanctions put on Saudi Arabia. Everything was fine. We continued to buy oil. And and this this argument that you're making, and I'm going to move on to China and Russia now, to think that they've never been aligned before, you know they've been aligned before. These guys are, are communist, evil dictatorships. They've been against the United States for the last 25, 30 years. But I've, never, but I've never felt like we were in an inferior position as I do today. I don't want to negotiate with Putin today because I think China and Russia have positioned themselves. They played their hand much better than we played ours. They've been playing their hand for 25 years. We've been playing ours for 25 years, Jeff. No, no, no. Like we had an open war with, with Russia. Reagan did a great job. They, we broke Russia. We, we crippled them. But we started buying from China, U.S. corporations. And you make it sound like administrations buy from China. Let's be honest. It's the American consumer, and it is corporations that have empowered China, not the U.S. government. And policy had nothing to do with that? Okay. Well, no, it didn't. Walmart, it, it picked me administrate, pick me a reason or a person that enabled China you can't. It's the United States consumer and businesses that did. So you don't believe that, that extend, you, you don't believe excessive government regulation and taxes and 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 the lack of pro, well we call it corporate margins. You don't think corporate margins come as a result of policy. You don't think regulation is expensive. You don't think policy cost the private sector uh, a percentage of their margins. It's not going to make a difference when China will build a factory for you for free. And their workers make a buck a day. Okay. No, it's it, uh, U.S. policy doesn't mean anything. Is that an issue of morality? That's the reality. No. That, well, it's corporate. If you if you rely on a corporation to have morality, you're in trouble. Okay. So so you're talking about business okay. ethic now. I'm talking about Walmart. Okay. We'll, we'll agree I with that. I mean, I, I, I don't dispute that. You and I would probably agree more than we disagree in that vein. Well, 
100%. But, but it's not new. This is my point to you. This is not new. It's been a battle <laughs> for 30 years. Well, I would argue 50 years. I mean, well, I, I really I mean, think you, you can know, go back to... I'll, I'll say that the Soviet Union in China started aligning after the Soviet Union collapsed. When did Nixon go to China? That was in the 70s, uh, right? Yeah, I'm talking about the Soviet Union okay. and the relationship. Oh, okay, that's, that's probably 25 or 30 years old. Yes. That's when it happened. When, China, when Russia realized that they can't do it economically against the United States, they can't just build a military with no money. But Jeff, isn't that in a weird way? Isn't that in a weird way what America First is about? I mean, as much as you may not no, like the figurehead, as much as much, let me finish. As much as you may not like sure. and are bothered by the devotion to the man, I mean, I'm bothered by that. Probably not as much as you are. I'm not devoted to a man. But I said earlier this morning, and I think you're saying something similar to this: Is it worth closing three plants that employ half the town to save a dollar per golf short or brake pad if everyone? turns into a meth addict or opioid addict. I mean, isn't, isn't that something you and I kind of sort of agree on? Yeah, so the, it, it is true, okay? But here's here's the thing, and, I, and I'll just, I'm going to say this blunt as I can. For you to think that Trump gives a crap about that is crazy because the man does business with China more than any president in history. You can point to Hunter. You can say whatever you want. This is a guy who actually does the practices that you pretend to hate. But the corporations, I mean, but, but everybody does. I mean, he's the only one. Okay. Let me finish. Let's assume you're right. And he's totally and completely insincere and he's conning a universe of people. Let's say it's 60% of the Republican party are being conned by a con man. It's worth it to me to put that issue on the table. I mean, once again, my, my allegiance to first America first, the, the political agenda, the political movement has very little to do with a devotion to one single man. I certainly accept that many, 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 many people in that airfield on Saturday are there not because uh, understanding complex international policy or trade or, or, or deindustrialization or globalization. It, it is, in, it is a, a devotion to a man, and that disturbs me. Probably not as much as it does you, but nothing that that issue was not even on the table until Donald Trump showed up on the political scene. I think you would agree to that. That there was nobody even talking about these issues until he shows up. Can can I and and, and you've talked about how long you've been engaged with politic politics, right? You talked about like you know I didn't you know you couldn't you couldn't we've had discussions about during the early nineties. Okay, or the early 2000s with Bush and the globalization movement. You you didn't pay attention in the in the 90s. No, but I've gone back and read the Bush doctrine was a very globalist interventionist doctrine. And he's a Republican. I mean, the the Bush doctrine was very globalist and very interventionist. Yeah. And and, and Reagan was. Don't don't kid yourself. Ronald Reagan was. And and we have to fight on that stage. What, whatever anybody believes, the United States, you know, we, we, they call us the policemen of the world. No, we're the savior of the world. And, and should we do it? I don't know. That's up to debate. But we're the only force for good in a lot of places around the world. But do you think it's inconceivable for us to be more ambitious in our manufacturing capacity 
and our energy producing? Uh, listen, energy production, we export as much oil as we import right now, today. We've talked about this. Right now, we export 800,000 barrels of crude a day. Those, that was against the law before the Obama administration. It was illegal to export non-refined crude products because of the 19, energy embargo in the early 70s. But we do it now. Should we do it? I don't know. I mean, like, you're, again, it's, it's important to understand the United States government does not buy one barrel of crude oil. Companies that do business in the United States buy crude oil. Correct. We don't buy any any oil from Russia. Well, I mean, we, we, we don't buy for the reserves, strategic reserves. I mean, we we that, that is our market. I mean, the, the the United States of America and federal government owns the the strategic reserve, and we bought that off the open market at some point in time. No, yeah. Here's what I'll tell you. That's a bunch of garbage because they're all located in the Gulf of Mexico, and it's all coming from the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. But, but I want to go so, back to one thing. I, I, want to, I, want to, I want to get your take on this because this is important to me because you and I, I know we fundamentally disagree on Trump. I get that. You think he's a grift and a con man. I think he's some of that and some of a lot of other things. And, and I respect that. But, but I want to go back to, 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 to the issue of leverage with Russia and leverage with China. You would agree, I think, that if we were to commit ourselves to be more industrious in manufacturing, we could deal with China in a different way. I mean, will you accept that as a, I didn't say we can or cannot, but if we were to pursue that as an alternative, we would, we could address China as a geopolitical adversary in in a position of more leverage or having more, more leverage. Uh, Here's, here's my point to that. Absolutely. A hundred percent. We can, you know why? Because the last time I checked, Russia's broke and can't buy anything from China. Okay. So here's my point. You can talk about leverage. The leverage is the American consumer. Our market, the free market, where we choose to buy products, you could go to Walmart, you could look at a label, that's where it has to happen. That's how you kill China's economic power. You're not going to do it any other way but stop buying their garbage. And you saw with the empty shelves and the screaming at Joe Biden, and it happened under Trump, there's supply chain shortages. We do buy everything from China. Of and course. we need American manufacturing. But guess what? Don't complain about inflation. But but if we but but and this is where I know we disagree because you're a bigger fan of government than I am. I'm not saying you're a flying liberal or flaming liberal. I've never accused you of that. I think you deregulate. I think you, um, you and what's preventing it? Let me, you, you the government, I mean, the, the, the government agencies, the bureaucrats, the institutionalists, the, uh, uh, the, the presidents, the Congress, I mean, you know, we've made it real expensive. I mean, I've been in business my entire life. It's unbelievably expensive to do business in America. I mean, it just is. I mean, yeah, in, in, we, in, we do have regulations. We don't hire slave labor. That's true. Well, I mean, but we, we tax the bejesus. out businesses. To think you're regulating businesses out of business to compete against China or India who pay their people nothing, you think you're going to unregulate that? No, 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 no. And, 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 I, and I would, okay, but, and, and that comes into morality. I mean, does the federal government have a moral obligation to not trade or not do business or not encourage corporations to do business? In, in other words, let me ask you a question, and I'd be very interested in your answer. 
would you be in favor? I mean, if I were if I were your senator and I introduced a bill that was going to punish countries or businesses, punish businesses that did um, that did business with with China, would you agree or disagree with that? I mean, if an American industry, let's use um, let's say Apple, let's use Apple as an example. For every phone manufactured in China. I'm going to put a, a surcharge or a tax or some sort of um, revenue rate trying to encourage manufacturers to come back to America. What, would you be supportive of that or not? Yeah, uh, again, we have done that with select industries. It's been successful. They did it for Harley-Davidson. Okay, that does work. But, but understand the ramifications. You're going to have inflation. You're going to have supply chain issues. And that... You, are you going to beat the president up? Are you going to beat your congressman up about this? The answer is yeah. The America First movement will attack him. Are you I a little more a, a Republican? Well, let me, let me I ask would you. love to see a Republican put that forward and watch what happens. Uh, last question, and I'm putting you on the spot here. Are you a little more of an America Firster than I than I originally believed you are? I mean, is there something about no, that movement, no. that element within that you find intriguing, interesting, and could support? Here's my point to you. I've always thought these things. It's not an America first movement. It's, it is an American movement. America has had this battle. We've had it in the 1980s with Japan. Japan's going to destroy American manufacturing. You remember the auto industries filing bankruptcy in the, in the 80s? Harley Davidson almost went under. This has happened, and it's happened from the Industrial Revolution on, when America got hooked on cheap products, okay? This is not new. <laughs> it's just being rebranded. Fair enough. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate the call, my man. I enjoy that. I mean, I love it when people call in and we respectfully disagree. I don't know that we disagreed a whole lot there. He knows I'm a Trump guy and he's not, and that's kind <laughs> of a, uh, that's a barrier. There you go. That's a barrier to more constructive conversation. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. That, that gets me, I mean, that gets me going. I mean, that, that really does. And you're not I mean, just saying that. I no, mean, of, it, of course not. You, I, you do like disagreement and a little back and forth. I and, wish Jeff called every day. I mean, I know he can't, uh, but I wish he would. I mean, I, you know, I, I wish we had six or eight or ten Jeffs. I think it stimulates everybody. I think it forces you to critically think. Look, I, I've got a strong-held opinion. But my opinion is wrong a lot. I mean, I, I'm not right about everything. I don't, you know, I express myself as if I am in hopes and anticipation of uh, getting a rise out of somebody out there who calls in. But, but I mean, you know, what I believe is what I believe, but I'm not stupid enough to believe what I think is always right and never wrong. I mean, of course, some of the things I've held on to, um, I found out the hard way over time that they were not where I needed to be and I needed to be in, in a different place and I mean, I, Jeff reminds me of that. And I hope to some degree I challenge uh, folks on the other side. I got a friend of mine who doesn't agree with much of what I say, but he listens every day. He said, you make me scratch my head a little bit. I like to people make me scratch my head a touch. Um, you know, at the end of the day, Rev, it, I don't know how you oppose. If you're an American, I mean, we can be a globalist. We can be a an interventionist. I mean, you can believe in the Bush doctrine, but I don't know how as an American – you don't believe it's the government's priority to look after the American people and, and make them most important in whatever political equation that comes across. 
And and I'm not one that argues that the Republicans have done that. The Democrats haven't. You know, we'd have a great America if it weren't for the Republicans. The Republicans are equally guilty of a lot of things that I wish they'd never done. But the Bush Doctrine is something I absolutely oppose. A Republican president who was more interventionist and more of an interna- internationalist than um, than I was comfortable with. But I don't have a 60-year... I'm not Thigpen. I don't. I mean, I, I voted to a registered vote at the age of 40 when I ran for office. So I'm not a guy who has devoted, you know, a career in understanding diplomacy and policy and execution of government um, in, in the way that, that others have. But yeah, I mean, to your point, you better believe I wish Jeff would call at least every day. And, and I wish there were a half dozen other Jeffs that would participate. Makes us all better. Back in a minute. Time for our Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia question and brought to you by, sponsored by our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence for continuing to punish themselves by associating with this feeble <laughs> attempt at radio brilliance. Really? Hey, Pat Buchanan ran for president, didn't win. The 15th president of the United States shared his last name. What was his first name? 843-661-0937. What was the name of the Buchanan guy who did win? the U.S. presidency. Pat Buchanan lost to George H.W. Bush, won New Hampshire, and then floundered a bit down the stretch. 843-661-0937 is our number. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence. Uh, the winner wins a six-pack of Pepsi product. A couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts, courtesy of Pepsi of Florence. Um, name the Buchanan. Give me his first name. The Buchanan who got elected president since Pat uh, didn't quite make it. Have a call. Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? Yes, James. Yep, James Buchanan. It was the 15th U.S. president. Who is this and where are you calling from? This is Sharon from Pampico. Okay, thank you very much. Congratulations. James Buchanan won. Pat Buchanan did not. Donald Trump won. Donald Trump also lost. Stop throwing the rocks. Thank you for calling. Uh, and Rev will get you in just a second as soon as we sign off the air. Got about 10 seconds here. But, um, yeah, big weekend in politics in Florence, South Carolina, as the former president was in town. Enjoy your day.